Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Father's Day to everybody out there. Hope you had a great Father's Day. I did. Got a chance to spend it with my two daughters. Talked to both my sons. Um, pretty cool stuff. And, uh, you know, to watch them go from babies to being adults, for the most part. I don't want to get over my skis here with anybody, but... Uh, no. I have cool kids, and they're good people, and Watching all of that is um, the work of a lifetime, right? And um, on Father's Day, when they take the time to just reach out and say, hey, um, very cool stuff. And um, yeah, so yeah, to all of you who experienced that over the course of the weekend, um, pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. So happy Father's Day to everybody. And happy Father's Day to every mother out there who's being a single mom, too. So, uh, when you are when you wear both hats, probably one of the harder jobs in life. Um, certainly works, works better when there's two people around to handle the workload, I think. Um, so, if you're doing that, happy Father's Day to you, too. The, um... I had a number of people reach out to me and say, Hey, Mac, I haven't seen anything about General Neal's passing. And um, for those of you on Facebook, um, I would tell you, go on Facebook and just type in Butch Neal. And I know, again, If you type that in, um, and you just cruise through the, um, just cruise through the posts um, uh, that people have put up, 
uh, you'll see just the different posts that people put up. And uh, so anyway, he was a he's a PT stud from whole mass. And um, so anyway, um, we celebrate his life. Uh, we honor his passing. And I had the opportunity to, um, I had the opportunity to interview him a couple times and you'll hear those interviews today. So um, anyway, if you wanna, if you're looking for some kind of, I don't know what the family's timeline is or what. I'm not even sure how many kids that he has, has that survive. I don't know any of that. Um, so anyway, um, or what the plan is. Uh, again, former assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. And uh, I think he's survived by his wife and uh, who he was caring for at the time of his death. So anyway, um, you'll hear from, uh, yeah, you'll hear just an incredible story. And, you know, you, you in the, the Marine Corps is filled with incredible stories. You know, where people come from, what they do, blah, 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 blah. And so, uh, so Butch Neal, we'll, uh, we'll do the news real quick and then uh, you'll hear uh, from him for uh, the better part of three and a half hours. Yeah. And it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal story about a, uh, a long shot of a human being. And, uh, but if you talk to him, if you talk to people who, who knew him, right, they would say, yeah. He wasn't a long shot at anything, right? He was every bit of all of that. So anyway, um, General Neal, um, who passed away last week. Um, so you'll hear from him. And again, my honor. I mean, it. Um, so when I saw that he had a had a book out, um, you know, I wanted to certainly talk to him about it. You know, especially when he's, you know, the book's, title is what now lieutenant question mark and what that is about is leadership so um so anyway the united states marine corps band uh makes the day after father's day official good morning to everybody out there and thanks for listening <laughs>
on a day that we honor Butch Neal. I couldn't rightly dedicate the show to anybody else but him. Uh, so this program's dedicated to um, just a, an amazing leader in the Marine Corps uh, who came from uh, not the easiest of paths and set an example for a lot of us that we had never forgotten. <laughs> You don't say what you think, and you don't say it honestly and bluntly. What keeps you awake at night? Nothing. I keep other people awake at night. For this campus had prepared him well. <clears throat> I'm very confident that, thank you very much. <clears throat> if this was vodka, it'd be a lot better speech. <clears throat> wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Alright, we'll check the weather very quickly. And then, uh, I'm not even gonna do any news. For some reason that strikes me as inappropriate on a day that we honor General Neal. So you'll hear him. And I don't think there's a better show I could do today than to let you to hear um, him. So, uh, currently in Quantico, it is partly sunny in 74. In Cherry Point, North Carolina, it is sunny in 81. Camp Pendleton, sunny 76. Camp, I'm sorry, 29 Palms, sunny in 76. Camp Pendleton, sunny in 70. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy and 75. In Okinawa, it is dark cloudy 82. Manila, dark cloudy 82. And in Darwin, it is dark cloudy 73. In Kiev, 
It is partly sunny and 89. Currently at the home of Marine Radio here in Costa Mesa, California. A stone's throw from Disneyland that shoots off fireworks every night at 9.38. Exactly. Yeah, in case you didn't know that. 9.38. Exactly. Set your watch to it. It is sunny and 71 degrees. Yep, that's what it is. So, that is a look at your weather. And, uh, again, uh, without further ado today, um, these are two interviews that I did with General Butch Neal. Now, I would tell you that they're out of sequence. And I have to, I have to go back and I have to look at um, how Getland's Corner... If somebody suggests it to me, that's the only thing I can think of is that somebody suggests to me that I uh, I take a look at the Battle of Getland's Corner because they heard that I was doing battlefield studies. Um, but that's not how it appeared in my head. So what I want you to do is I want you to listen to his book first. Right, and the book interview is called "What Now, Lieutenant," and it's the second interview I did with him. And then you'll hear the first interview I did with him after that. But I think you get a better sense of General Neal when you listen to him talk about his book and his life um, than you would um, hearing the first interview. And and if if my recollection serves me well. I mean, he was he was he was very um, deliberate in what he would speak of, talking about the Battle of Getland's Corner. Um, yeah, very deliberate. Me meaning he stayed away from certain things that he didn't want to talk about, and so it was interesting. Um, when I interviewed Jack Riley, Jack Riley was uh, much more open about talking about some more of the details and what happened um, during that fight during the Vietnam War than General Neal was. General Neal was very, I would say, um, very disciplined and very clipped about what he would talk about. So um, so you're going to hear a conversation he and I had, um, and you're going to hear that right now. So... Without further ado, oops, I'm supposed to put an end to the old one before I start the new one. All right, here's General Butch Neal. Just a, just a wonderful interview, and on his passing, we certainly celebrate his life. You're listening to All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Could you whisper in my ear The things you want to feel I'll give you anything To feel it coming Do you wake up on the throne I wonder where you are 
Without any further ado, um, one of and it's just an incredible story because uh, if there's if, if there's a guy who I've had on this program that has uh, would have had every right to um, to not be what he became, uh, it is Butch Neal from Hull, Massachusetts. And I would encourage you look up where Hull, Massachusetts is. Okay. It is a tiny town. And um if if you if you click on a map, you have the city of Boston. And if you go south out of Boston, right, down ninety three, if you uh then you'll you'll have to take 3A Highway 3A that takes you through Quincy, Massachusetts, again south of Boston along the coast, and then you swing east out towards Cohasset. You get to a uh, a peninsula, and you go all the way to the end of the peninsula. Across a small, <laughs> you go across a small kind of, you know, stretch of uh, of road. It's very thin, and you come to the peninsula of Hull, Massachusetts, and it sits across Boston Harbor, and it takes between forty five minutes and an hour to get there from Boston, or I think twenty minutes by ferry. He's from there. Father passed away when he was. Uh, 14, and every you know all the things that add up against somebody that 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 provide venues for you to get into trouble. He doesn't. He goes to work as a garbage man, supporting his mom and sisters, uh, helping to support them. And uh, I believe that his mom would have been entitled to what's known as a widow a widow's pension, uh, which is I think the Social Security Administration steps in. Uh, anyway, um, so. Um, here is Butch Neal. His book is entitled What's Now Lieutenant? And he's an interesting guy. A little bit more official music today. And, uh, Rejoining us here on All Marine Radio is uh, the former Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, retired Marine General Butch Neal. So, sir, first of all, uh, on behalf of a lot of people, thanks for coming back, and uh, uh, I'm going to talk about your book today, but uh, thank you very much for doing this. All right. Really enjoyed uh, the last uh, go-around. So look forward to your questions, and hopefully I can answer them. All right. Well, if you can't, nobody can. The um, First of all, uh, why write why write the book? Well, actually, in the book, I, I kind of said why I did. My my three kids uh, kind of urged me to uh, to put down in paper what transpired over the 35 years I was in the Marine Corps, and um, significantly, uh, the Christmas after I retired, 
two of the two of the three uh, gave me a book called uh, Legacy, a step-by-step guide to writing personal history. Uh, they both gave it to me, not knowing the other one was going to give it to me. And uh, <laughs> so that was the first reason. The second was probably to recognize those Marines in the battle with uh, some folks have called Battle of Gatlin's Corner uh, in Vietnam in March 30, 31, 1967. And then the third, as I was writing it, I saw that there was a lot of kind of good leadership. They weren't uh, they weren't uh, italicized or bold faced or anything, but they were a lot of leadership lessons learned over 35 years that I thought were worth sharing with uh, with other folks. And so th- those three reasons are really why I sat down and wrote the book. You have lived an incredible life. Do you ever look around and say, you know, Neil, how you pulled this off and fooled everybody, I have no idea, but you're a long way from Hull Mass out there um, across from across the harbor from Boston and certainly a long way from, uh, from being a, a trash man. Um, do you ever look back on your life, sir, and think, wow, what a run? Yeah, actually I do. Um, uh, as, as you you read the book, uh, as folks who do have the opportunity to read the book, they find out that um, that Hull is weaved throughout the book. In fact, uh, I, I have a house there. I'll be there over Memorial Day weekend. The Marines that were with uh, that I had the honor to serve with in, in, in that battle, they'll be there for a reunion we're going to have uh, on uh, 29, 30, or 31 May. So, uh, yeah, how is uh, how was uh, I attribute uh, any successes I've enjoyed uh, leading up to the Marine Corps and developing just strong character as a result of the folks that uh, I had the good opportunity to grow up around and with in, in Hull Mass. You know. Um this Memorial Day out here at uh, Camp San Mateo at Camp Pendleton, the 5th Marine, the Vietnam veterans of the 5th Marine Regiment are going to erect, I don't know if you've seen a picture of it, but if not, I'll send you one, uh, a Vietnam memorial to Marines and sailors who died uh, fighting under the regimental color of the 5th Marine Regiment. Those Marines, and, and, and the term Semper Fidelis, what does Semper Fidelis mean, always faithful? What is that, and how does that change as you get out of the Marine Corps, as you retire, as, as we all age? But they raised over $400,000 to build this thing. Wow. And it's absolutely yeah. beautiful. And I just, you know, you going back and, and being with your friends from, uh, with the uh, India Company, uh, 3-9, that you were with on in, in 1967, uh, for uh, for all Marines, these are great examples of of what it is, what Semper Fidelis, you know, means in life, um, and uh, I think very very cool things. As uh, but four hundred thousand dollars, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, just a story from uh, from the Boston area, as I as I mentioned to you before we went on uh, talking about the book. Uh, I'm going to be on the USS Constitution on Friday of this week. Uh, to participate in a ceremony that uh, is recognizing Vietnam veterans. The governor will be there, the mayor and other politicians, and uh, we'll give out uh, the Vietnam uh, pin that uh, DOD has, uh, DOD has uh, struck. And I'm going to talk to him about, about uh, four miles away from where the Constitution is birthed is a, is a Vietnam memorial in South Boston. And that was built in 1981, September 13th, actually, 1981, actually one year ahead of when the Vietnam Memorial 
was built in Washington, D.C. And so the folks from Southie, there's 25 names on that memorial, and every year uh, they the Marine Corps shows up and they have a ceremony on the 13th of September. So, you know, some people never did forget that. That memorial in Southie was built by uh, six guys, six Marines, get out of high school and they went to, they all signed up for the Marine Corps. Three of them died in Vietnam. Three made it back. Those three that made it back, they raised the money and they built the monument. It's it's a spectacular monument uh, up in uh, M, M, M Street uh, Park in Southie. You know, I, <clears throat> I, I want to say that John Kelly uh, one time was telling me about that, about that monument. And he said, Mac, you gotta, you gotta go see it. And for whatever reason, I cannot get away from people from Massachusetts in the Marine Corps. Uh, whether it's Kelly or Dunford or Sergeant Major Bell, uh, it just seems like they're everywhere. Why, is that a fact? Why, why, why is the Marine Corps, does it have a strong influence in Boston? Why, and yeah. so why? I think it's that, uh, yeah, a lot of those names, you know, um, Sheehan, Kelly, uh, <laughs> Donford, it's, uh, I don't know if it's a Jesuit or Catholic, uh, upbringing. You know, a lot of the Irish neighborhoods up there were big, uh, big, uh, contributors to the Marine Corps, uh, in all the different wars. And, uh, I don't know. There's just a heritage up there that, that, um, keeps the Marine Corps alive. Every, every November we have, uh, what they call a simplified luncheon and no less than 1,500 to 2,000 wow. Marines show up there. And it's usually a four-star as the guest of honor. I've been the guest of honor. All of the commandants have been the best of honor. Joe Dunford was the guest of honor this past year. Uh, they held Every year they hold a Medal of Honor get-together up there. Uh, Barney Barnum usually leads the group. So, it, yeah, it's a, it's a great Marine Corps town. There's no doubt about it. Barnum. You, you already guys, you guys, do you guys stick together? Do you guys have your own little club inside of the club? <laughs> no, Barney's a good friend, has been forever, but uh, he's a good man. And, uh, yeah, we, uh, that, that Simplify Luncheon, uh, Tommy Lyons, who's really Mr. Marine in, in, in the Boston area, he's responsible for building that. He and three other friends, uh, two other friends, are responsible for building that monument uh, in 1981. So, you can just see they they were just uh, way ahead of the curve as far as making sure no one forgot. The, I want to talk to you about some. I want to ask you about different episodes in the book, and 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 I'll tee them up and you hit them. The significance of being a trash man. You you were a, essentially a gar a sanitation worker, garbage man, whatever you want to call it. Tra- you call it trash man. What did you take out of of, of that experience? I mean, there's a lot of people today that would read that and said, and say, he did what? (laughs) Yeah. What was the significance of that in your life? Well, the significance was a couple things. Uh, One, that uh, a former friend of my dad, my dad died when I was 14, so we didn't, we weren't really well off. Um, In those days, they couldn't afford insurance, so we didn't have insurance. So, uh, you know, we were... We were lower middle class, probably even lower lower than that, but that didn't matter. But, uh, you know, I think the significance of that job, this friend of my dad, he kept that job open for me so that when and if any time I was free, I was able to to go work and make some money to help the the home front and also to help myself. And, And I was a commuter. I went to a commuter school. 
uh, commuted 30 miles each way every day. So school was a means to an end. Fortunately, Northeastern University was a was a great school for me. And, and um, uh, although it's a five-year school, or at least I took the five-year program where it's called cooperative education, you one year is a full year like any traditional college, and then the last four, uh, they break it up into semesters. One semester you're out working and some job related to what you're getting a degree in and then the next semester you're in school and you do that for four years and then then you get uh, you graduate with a with a with a degree so i guess the, the trash man really was just uh, the emphasis on hard work and it never hurt anybody and uh, there's nothing you can't do if you don't if you don't put your nose to the grindstone and do it do you talk to do you still talk to young people today because you were raised different. I was raised different. I went to Catholic schools, and 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 when life got difficult in in my life, nobody asked me how does that make you feel, right? My feelings were not at the top of the list, but today, that's the first thing I think the kids get asked. How did that make you feel, you know? And I don't think you grew up like that. Um, do we owe kids a little bit more toughness in their life? How do you square that up? That's a good question, which I'm not really sure if I know the answer to it. Um, sometimes nowadays it seems like um, the youngsters, and, and, and I don't make a blanket indictment, but they kind of look for the easy way out when they're faced with either situations or circumstances that that call for perhaps um, sucking it up a little bit and, and just moving on, you know, uh, I could have gotten I could have gotten into a lot of trouble um, after my dad died because I I started to get a little bit wild. But there were people in the town that basically sort of grabbed me by the shoulders and said, "Hey, you know, you've got a, the possibility of a good future. You know, you just got to you know you know you got to get yourself straightened out because the only one you're going to hurt is yourself plus your mother, and you're going to disappoint a lot of people because they see there's great potential in you." So. Those are the type of people that I was fortunate enough to run into as I went along uh, the journey that it's called life, and it and it, and and I owe people a, a great deal of thanks and admiration for them sticking with me. The um, I, 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 I'm going to skip over your Vietnam service because we talked about that at length. Um, you came back and uh, and you head up to you head up to Boston, um, and and. You, in the course of your duties up there, uh, you wound up being a casualty assistance officer. Now, uh, I want to ask you about that. What, what was that like? Because that is a duty that I, I, I know brave men who who want no part of that because it's, they'll they'll tell you flat out it's that's too hard. I don't I don't want to go there. And I think last time you were on, we talked about you know uh, I mentioned Jarvis uh, Lynch's brother, um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel. Uh, Chaz Lynch, and he talking about um, he did over a hundred and then asked to go back to Vietnam because that was the only mm-hmm. place he he could go, and I, and he said I'll, I'll be happy to. Um, casualty assistant notifications. Um, what was that experience like for you? That was tough. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, it. Was one of those secondary duties. You know, I was the guard officer for the Marine Barracks in Boston, and so. Uh, I was there 68, 69, uh, 69, 68, 69, and, and there was a lot of casualties there. That was during Tet, and, right. um, a lot of, uh, 
Irish Marines, uh, or not just Irish, but Bostonian Marines, uh, who were either wounded or killed. And uh, making those calls, I used to have a chaplain go with me if, if possible. But making those calls was really tough duty. There's no way, no way, shape around it. Um, you've got to. You never know what the what what's going to happen when you open when they see you at the door in your blue uniform, and uh, they know damn well why you're there. You're either telling them that your son or daughter has been wounded, or your son and daughter has been captured, or son and daughter is missing, or son and daughter has been killed. And um, fortunately. Most of the folks that I made the casualty calls to um, were understanding, and the, and the chaplain obviously helped a lot by being there. So between the two of us, we could kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say do damage control, but we could mitigate the impact of someone finding out that their son or daughter has been killed. Is there something that you took away from that experience? Oh, maybe an inner strength. I think one of the advantages, if there is such a thing from my having been in combat in Vietnam uh, before I became a casualty assistant officer, maybe that helped a little bit because uh, I understood, you know, what was going through their mind and I was able to in some way, shape or form because the information about how it happened was always sketchy at best. Uh, And so I could kind of walk them through you know, as a result of my experience in combat and having people uh, killed and wounded during my first tour, uh, I think that helped a lot. And uh, and I gained, you know, confidence uh, in my ability to deal with people and to help them through crisis situation. You go back to Vietnam as an advisor, and I want to say that the Marines I know uh, that went back at advisors that's a pretty robust uh, list of Marine officers. Um, wow. I mean, there's a picture in your book of you and Tom Drowdy, uh, who, who comes on the, uh, the program on a regular basis. But, you know, those names, Drowdy, Zinni, Smith, uh, there's some big-time names on that, that honor roll. Um, why did you want to go back as an advisor? And, 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 and give me a lesson learned out of that. Um, it probably, uh, the, the XO of the bat, of the barracks where I was at was a, a former advisor and, um, he talked about it and, uh, I knew if I stayed in, this was kind of a decision making point, you know, it was about that time where I could either, uh, you know, uh, run out my enlisted, enlistment and settle in Boston, which was my hometown, which was obviously very attractive. And my wife was from Boston as well, so there was a lot of attractiveness about about the, perhaps just getting out. But then again, uh, that experience, my first tour, and the trust I saw of the people with work that that I had the good honor of uh, of, of uh, operating with as a Marine, uh, you know, and then listening to this XO talk about advisor duty, uh, it sounded like this would be something I'd be really interested in and probably be good at. And what complicated the decision was that my wife had just had uh, our first baby, uh, my son, Andrew. And so here I was making a decision about going back to Vietnam, leaving a four-month-old son with a with my wife. Uh, you know, <laughs> that kind of complicated the decision. Fortunately, she supported my decision, and, and over I went. And then I think going back, if you're a book, uh, which you had, 
there was some disappointment about not being selected to be an 03, an infantry guy. Uh, this assignment that uh, I was going back as an infantry battalion advisor sort of um, said that uh, somebody up at, in, in the Marine Corps believed that I had the experience and the wherewithal to be an infantry advisor to the Vietnamese Marines. But you don't truly get over the whole infantry chip on your shoulder. The, the last thing the Marine Corps needs is another guy under six foot with a chip on their shoulder, okay? And you don't get over that until you become the division commander of the 2nd Marine Division, yes? That's when it all, that's when you finally get your infantry, the infantry job that you want. Is that true? I think, you know, the desire to be an infantry officer it was always there. But I, I, you know, as I got more senior as a major and lieutenant colonel, uh, getting the opportunity to work around the artillery as a battery commander, you know, being a commander, I don't care what MOS, being a commander is what being a Marine is all about. And, but I always thought that being a, a commander or a Marine in a combat situation, uh, the best, the best position would be as an infantry officer. Um, you know, I got my taste of that during my first tour as a young lieutenant, and then my second tour as a as a infantry battalion advisor with the Vietnamese Marines. That again was um, that was a tough tour because you basically we were alone. Basically, it was me and myself, and that was it. And a, and a radio. And the um, Vietnamese Marines assigned me what they called a cowboy, which was a young junior enlisted guy, and he was my sort of my he humped the radio while I humped my living stuff and. It was just, um, it was, um, I learned a lot from the Vietnamese because uh, they, had been, they had been fighting a lot longer than I had. I learned a lot from them, but they also respected uh, the, the advice and, and counsel that I gave them. So it was a good team effort and uh, a real learning experience. And as you pointed out, <clears throat> the guys that I got to meet, the other advisors, I mean, they were the, some of the cream of the crop that uh, that uh, was, we're going to lead the Marine Corps in the next 20 years. So uh, it, was, it was really a, you know, it was a learning experience for me, but it also was a great time to build great relationships and, and professional reputations. You know, it's funny. Um, I ran into um, uh, Marty Steele was my battalion commander at 1st Light Armor Vehicle Battalion in 1984, and, or 1985. And, and uh, I remember asking him once later, I said, "Hey, sir, do you know, um, do you know Ray, do you know Colonel Ray Smith?" He said, "Yeah, he was my roommate at the basic school." What? And then, yeah. then Zinni's name comes up. He said, "Yeah, Zinni and I were." And it's like, it's like all of a sudden this web gets kind of woven that you perform your way into, and that there's this fraternity that knows each other as it kind of progresses through the, through the Marine Corps. It's very interesting, guys that know each other. Um, by virtue of operational excellence, I would say, because you can't you can't talk your way into that club, you perform your way into that club, and uh, a lot of them, uh, your Tom Drowdy, we were talking about uh, your experience as, as an advisor. You then you then your career then takes you takes kind of a political turn. So it's it, it looks like it's kind of the first um, you've been an operational marine. Now somebody sees in you something where we're going to make Neil, uh, he's the guy to go to New Orleans. To rescue this junior uh, Marine Junior ROTC program, that's the pet of a very very high profile uh, member of Congress. Uh, that must that must have been coming from being a 
a uh, you know a company level officer that must have been a little bit of a glimpse behind a curtain that you uh, in a place that you hadn't heretofore dealt with uh that's for sure the um that was interesting that was what you take away from that is uh, you grow where you're planted and uh i was planted down in new orleans i had been i was i came back from vietnam as an advisor um was at AWS at the Beast Warfare School, and uh, had been the monitor had said I'd be going out to basic school as a tactics uh, instructor, which you know was perfect with what I wanted to do. You know, staying in that infantry pipeline, so to speak, and then to get that strange call, you know, almost um, maybe a month, or maybe a month and a half before graduating from the Beast Warfare School and being told that I was being nominated for this position and once I found out it was a junior ROTC I knew little about the junior ROTC program except that I knew it was all retired uh, officers and staff and CEOs uh, were, were, were running them and I said well you know here I am an active duty captain I'm going to New Orleans I'm going to be running a high school a junior ROTC program I said are you serious and they said yeah, I put on your greens and be up here, and we're taking you over to Capitol Hill. You got to meet somebody. So over I went, got to meet F. Edward A. Bear, and uh, you know he was he was the, the granddaddy of the JROTC program for all of the services, and he was real proud of that. And he was even more proud that the Marine Corps' first JROTC program was in his high school, Jesuit High School in New Orleans, and. Uh, it was floundering a little bit, and he just didn't want that to happen on his watch. And so I guess he convinced the commandant, which probably wasn't very difficult, that he ought to look into putting an active duty guy down there. And so uh, we packed our trash after we finished AWS and went to New Orleans and uh, had a great two years. And uh, when I left there in two years, uh, not only did I have a master's degree from Tulane, but I also... Uh, we were named the number number one JRTC in the country, so it, you know it, it all worked out well. Favorite, your favorite food from New Orleans? Oh, crawfish! <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about it, hands down. Don't even. <laughs> we had a wonderful time. The faculty were just wonderful people. The Jesuits, um, they they had their first lay principal there, Mike Powers. Uh, Wonderful guy. He actually, he and his wife uh, actually were the grandparents, uh, godparents for our second child, my daughter Amy. So uh, we just had a wonderful time with great people, great food, and uh, a great chance to uh, probably influence um, two, three, four, five hundred young uh, men that were students at Jesuit High School. The um you then you then go uh, back to Camp Lejeune and you take uh, you get the command of a battery and uh, I want to ask you about um, you know it's interesting um, I had uh, Barney Barnum on and uh, who uh, is is a legend in the Marine Corps and uh, I've had him on a few times the last time he was on here a couple months ago talking about the passing of West Fox and uh, and shooting artillery for the night uh, for uh, for Alpha 19, uh, the night of uh, his action that led to his uh, becoming a recipient of the Medal of Honor, and uh, but Barney is a, a an interesting interesting guy, and, and 
a little a little bit like you. you I don't, I'm not sure if they teach this in arty school, but uh, he's not a, he's not afraid to share an opinion, and uh, mm-hmm. he's not afraid to tell you when uh, when you're wrong. And uh, the um, one of the things that that he talked about was the condition of the Marine Corps post Vietnam. You write about it in your book about is is it the expedition expeditionist exp- what am I talking about? The discharge program that General Wilson put in. Oh, oh, yeah, with General Wilson, yeah, the ex- ex- expedition, expeditionary. <laughs> I don't know. You got me confused now. Uh, the uh, what do you call it? Expeditious discharge. Ex- program. Expeditious, expeditious, yeah, expeditious. In other words, speeding up the process. Expeditious discharge program. Yeah, General uh, General uh, Wilson. Had taken over as commandant, and the and the corps was in disarray. We had uh, drug problems. We had people that uh, didn't want to be Marines and didn't live up to the ethos of being a Marine. Uh, there was a lot of going home itis from some that came that was post Vietnam. They didn't sign up to to be in a peacetime environment. You just had uh, the Marine Corps was in in real disarray, and 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 uh, General. Uh, Wilson, to his credit, said, I don't care if we go down to two people in the Marine Corps, myself and the Sergeant Major, uh, we're going to have people that want to be Marines. And so he, he got the expeditious discharge program initiated, and it made it much easier for us to uh, process individuals that were not living up to what a Marine is supposed to live up to and get them out of the Marine Corps. And uh I liken it to you opening a, a window and fresh air coming in. It just, it, 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 you could, it was so dramatic and the change was so profound as a result of that program. Uh, now we had Marines that wanted to be Marines and it was back to being job satisfaction number one. That, I'll tell you what, you talk about uh, a decision that took a little bit of, of courage. Um, you look at that institutionally. And, uh, but it, it, it proves to be, I've had so many people on the program that have pointed to that and said, you know, that helped us turn the corners quick, much quicker than we would have had, would we have had to endure, uh, operations normal and, and, and extending those enlistments just absolutely, absolutely miserable. The, um, I, I want to kind of tie this into you, not the next. You, you become a ground monitor, then you become an aide to the, to uh, ironically the assistant commander of the Marine Corps. How, how do you say that last name? Jeskoka. Jeskoka, yeah, Sam Jeskoka, yeah. Um, what was it like to be around general officers like that? I mean, these go, these are World War II, Korea, Vietnam guys. Um, I've had um, General Lynch talk to me about uh, uh, being around General Barrow, um, and uh, and uh, Colonel Barnum said talk about the same thing. Uh, I want to say with uh, General Walt and, and 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 other Marines. What was it like um, your experience being around those kind of Marines that that had come from all that experience? Oh, it was just another, you know, another ring in the in the growth. The chapter, you know, basically, uh, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, I was up, I was, uh, I went down there. I didn't really want to be the aide. Uh, actually, the, my, the guy that I succeeded with Les Palm, he made major general before getting out of the Marine Corps. He was an artillery guy. And I think just the artillery connection, plus he came out of manpower. 
to go down to BVA, and I think he he just thought I'd be a natural fit with General Diskilka because we sort of had the same temperament. Uh, he and I, you know, he was just a, a wonderful leader and a, and, a, and a good man to be around. And and like you say, he had uh, World War II and uh, Korean experience. Uh, he was a double Silver Star winner, so he'd, he'd been around the horn and. and uh, and knew his way. Uh, he was really very effective for General Wilson in dealing with Capitol Hill, and so they had. A, there was a great relationship between those two. And uh, you know, you're at a level where you get to see paperwork and stuff come across your desk on the way into the old man's office, and uh, basically you kind of see how their decision-making process worked. And uh, and you learn something. Really, I learned uh, probably during that time. Which was both, was really profound for my development in the years to follow. Where was that? Uh, you know, as young officers, we sort of work in a black and white world. In other words, you're either guilty and not guilty. You're either right or wrong. Well, those guys have to work in a in a gray world because uh, there's extenuation and, and you know there's, there's there's unintended consequences if you just operate in black and white. So he. He kind of taught that to me, and, and, and just watching him and General Wilson at work, I I saw the, the wisdom of them uh, making decisions after they discussed things from one end to the other, and then they were always looking at how do we, how do we um, imp- you know, introduce extenuation and mitigation in here if, in fact, rather than Lance Corporal Jones is guilty run him in for office hours, why don't we go to a second level and say, why was Lance Corporal Jones late? Maybe his wife was sick and they only had one automobile or, you know, there may be other circumstances that mitigate the uh, the offense that uh, he's been charged with. So that was important and that was something that I tried to convey to all the young officers, both young and not so young, as I came in, that I came in contact throughout the rest of my career. The... Um I want to ask you a couple of things about being an instructor at AWS. Uh, one, my time as an instructor at the basic school and, and the infantry officer course, I thought it was an opportunity for me, first of all, to learn all the stuff that I should have learned the first time I went through that course. and But, but second of all, to really separate myself professionally from my peers because you got a chance to study um, whether it was the planning process or or, or tactics and the way we do stuff and, and, and what worked and what, and, and what didn't work. And you got a chance to really immerse yourself in your profession uh, when you became an instructor. Uh, I'm curious, uh, uh, your thoughts about being uh, your time as an instructor, and then, and then I've got a couple other things I want to ask about, about that period of time. Yeah, that, um, you know, I think as a Marine, Particularly as an officer or as a staff NCO, you learn early on that you really are a teacher. You know, you're a trainer, you're a teacher, you're an instructor. So it's a natural fit, and it's an important requirement because throughout your career, you know, you're responsible for teaching, for training, and for mentoring. And I think there's no better place to do that than in the schoolhouse because you've got a captured audience, so to speak, 200, 250 young captains, uh, impressionable. Uh, they're looking at you as a role model. They're learning from just a, they're, you're under a microscope all the time. And so you can impact them as no one else can, uh, except maybe a commanding officer. So it's really a, it's a great time because they're, they're there for one reason, to learn more about their profession. And it was right about that time 
that uh, General Gray was starting to push professional military education and the importance of maneuver warfare and the warfighting pamphlets and stuff, all of those things were starting to resonate because, um, you know, there was a lot of lessons learned and not so good lessons learned from Vietnam, and it was time to kind of step back and take a fresh eyes view of uh, how do we do this better. So, you know, being an instructor, both uh, as an instructor there for three years and then uh, later on being the director, those are great opportunities to influence uh, a couple generations of young leaders to be in the Marine Corps. Uh, what was your favorite Civil War battlefield? I'm sure you spent some time on those things. Did you Did you have a favorite one? I liked uh, probably Gettysburg the best, only because of Chamberlain's charge and and uh, and uh, you know it was close proximity. It wasn't that far away. We used to, we went to the Manassas battlefields. We went down to Fredericksburg. We we basically took advantage of our location and uh, with the with the emphasis on maneuver warfare. Uh, you know, we created a lot of what now captain, what now lieutenant type situations where they had to, uh, okay, this is where the enemy is. What would you do versus what really happened in history? Right. No, I think that's I, I think that's powerful. Gettysburg's my favorite too, and and the uh, and and the decision making around uh, you know Chamberlain's brigade commander, how he even gets there in the first place. I think it's all mm-hmm. is all riveting history. Strong Vincent is his name, and uh, and the fight they have at Little Round Top and culminating in in Chamberlain on the left flank. The um, mm-hmm. you also made made a point in the book about um, getting irritated uh, at uh, when you were I think you were uh, what were you chief of instruction uh, uh, in your first tour at AWS getting getting pissed at people. Um, because for anybody who's never seen you or crossed paths with you, um, when you get a serious look on your face, there's no doubt in anybody's mind that, that, that Colonel General Neal, whoever you're dealing with at the time, he's pretty intense on what he's doing. And then you go back to normal. Um, I, I, when I served with General Mattis, I used to see him do that. And it would leave people scratching their heads like, I thought he was pissed at me, and now he's not. Um, talk about that, because I think that's a, not everybody develops that gift in terms of being able to, to be irritated and, and let people know how you feel, and then also being able to switch gears and then, and then treat them like a teammate again. Uh, I think it's an interesting leadership um, quality. Yeah, that's that, as I say in the book, if I recall, uh, I really didn't real. I couldn't remember what the incident was, but I know that I was really, I guess for a best term, I was disappointed in what they had done or not done. And so this was my dad, uh, about 10 or 15, well, probably 12 or 15 young captains. So I called them all into the, into our room, our den downstairs and at Amphibious Warfare School and, and kind of uh, reamed them out chapter and verse, you know, about uh, they disappointed me, their conduct was unbecoming, they weren't, they weren't taking, uh, they weren't being acting like professionals that I thought they should. And, and I, I guess maybe an hour later, I met some of them in the hallway and stuff like that, and it was as if uh, it had never happened. Uh, and I think that kind of shocked them because they thought that I might be holding a grudge or be pissed at them for a week or two. But uh, I had, uh, I had, I had uh, sent the message. I had uh, conveyed it in, in most. Uh, in the strongest terms I could, but at the same time, 
uh, we had to move on, and if they're professionals, I'm going to treat them like professionals. Believe me, I could have got pissed again if they if they ever let me down. <laughs> the, uh, and I'm sure they knew that. Um, you went to work for General Christ, uh, or he came to CENTCOM uh, uh, after you after you had been there. CENTCOM was not the CENTCOM we know today. Uh, back then, you know, the, the places people wanted to go were the places they uh, we had historically wanted to go, right? When that would be, uh, they wanted to go to Europe and they wanted to go to the Pacific. Uh, CENTCOM, yeah. you know, was not it's not the, the the cool place that it is today. Um, Talk about that, you know, I mean, because the Middle East wasn't on our radar so much back then. It was after, you know, in the 70s with OPEC and all that, at least the region anyway. But, you know, most of us didn't have a whole lot about it. But uh, General Chris comes down there, and, and you learn how to say something that a lot of people struggle with, struggle with in their life, and that is the phrase, I don't know. Uh, but I, you know, I'm sure you followed up, but I'll, I will find out, and I'll get right back to you. Uh, talk about Talk about that time. I, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. You were country before country was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, basically, the Goldwater Nichols Act, uh, the reorganization of DOD, and one of the things that happened as a result of that act was that they created these combatant commands and CENTCOM was one of them. Just as you point out, uh, here to four, uh, the two commands you wanted to go to if you wanted to do a joint thing was uh, uh, NATO or UCOM or uh, PACOM, Pacific Command, um, obviously by the DOD Reorganization Act of 1986 to go water nickels, it now made it um, abundantly clear to all the services that uh, joint was in and that you had to, in order to, for promotion in certain ranks, you had to have a joint tour. So we're, in the old days, just going down to CENTCOM was a great place to, it was sunny south down in Florida, Tampa, Florida, a great place to spend your last couple of years in the service and then uh, retire in Florida. Not a bad move. So when uh, I was down there with uh, General Bob Kingston, he was the uh, the sink at that time, and then he was replaced by General Christ, uh, who was coming out uh, from the joint staff uh, where he was the, uh, I think he was the, uh, I'm not sure what his job was with the joint staff. Anyways, he came down, was promoted to four-star, and uh, he's a tough guy. Uh, he didn't suffer fools. Um, was a workaholic, and uh, you know you'd be lucky if he had Christmas off. But uh, <laughs> I learned a lot from him. I learned how to write, and uh, also learned how to um, you know uh, listen when uh, when talking to him. And then I think the, the telling point with my relationship with him was when uh, he. Uh, we were looking at the JSCAP, Joint Strategic Capabilities Plan, and, of course, everybody said he was the guy that knew it inside and out, and I had gone over it with him previously because it fell under my bailiwick, and he uh, he wanted some things changed. Obviously, I wrote the messages and talked over the phone with the joint staff, and the changes were going to be made, but they weren't going to be made immediately just because they were waiting to get all the input in before they uh, put out another document. I was briefing him, and and when I said uh, when I said, well, uh, that change you wanted here it won't be won't be made until next time around. You know, stop. That's the trouble with you, Neil. You know, you've been an operator too long. You don't understand the joint business. Because uh, my Irish temper took over, and I looked at him and I just said, I may be a 
he said, you're naive. That's what really pissed me off. I said, I may be naive, but I don't believe I'm wrong. <laughs> you know, everybody thought I was on the way out. And, uh, and you said that in public. Was, that was in public, right? For other. Oh, yeah. There was a, a room full of generals and admirals. So uh, they all looked at me, and, and they said, Neil's toast. And uh, uh, to his credit, uh, he never did tell me. He never, he never apologized for what he said to me, but from that day on, I could have said a red rug was green, and he'd agree with me. So we, we got along well after that. Well, you, sir, did you find that, that uh, I had a similar experience with General Madison at staff meeting. I was his staff sack, and he looked down, and I used to keep my notebook in my lap. And so I was sitting there, and, and I was looking at my notebook. He thought I was asleep. <laughs> Right, and you can imagine. So after the meeting, right, you know, and this is, you know, this is when Dunford's the chief of staff, Kelly's the assistant division commander. We're in Al Ambar in 2004, blah, 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 blah. And after the meeting, everybody, you know, going their separate way, I stand up, and he looks at me and goes, Matt, come here. And, um, and he said, Joe, come here. And so we get to the, we get to the front door of his office, and he looks at me, and he says, stay awake in my staff meetings. And I, I looked at him and I said, I was awake, sir. And he said, I looked down and you were sleeping. I said, sir, I wasn't sleeping. I said, my, my, and <laughs> with that I could see Dumford look at his face like, oh no. And I said, sir, my notes were in my lap. And if you look down and my eyes, if you thought they were closed, I was staring at my notes. I don't sleep in your meetings. And he looked at me. And I could feel the back side of my skull melting as he stared right <laughs> through me. But I, you know what? I, I mean, I, I think that he did respect that ultimately. He knew I was a hard worker. And, um, and, and he looked at me and he said, all right. All right. But I thought he was going to, I thought he was going to explode. But, yeah, um, I, that, that was the same thing with General Chris. Uh, everybody was, uh, really walking on eggshells around him and, uh, when I stood up to him, he had he, he had he had uh, fired a lot of colonels, and I think everybody thought I was the next one in line. But um, <laughs> I think he I think he respected the fact that I that, that I stood up to him, even though I knew he, he knew this document and he knew the Joint Staff way better than I did. But um, so yeah, the lesson learned from that is you know if you're right, uh, stick by your guns, and same as you did when you said no, I wasn't asleep. <laughs> Uh, I did the same thing, uh, saying that they, the joint staff told me they're going to make the change, and so I was—he was shooting the messenger, and he realized it. I think. Okay, so talk about uh, kind of shifting gears. Talk about with guys like that, and I know General Mattis was this way. And I used to stand. I used to, whether it was a was an ops intel brief, you know, it's like okay, everybody. He's the smartest guy in the room. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Actually, Dunford might be, but it'd be a pretty good fight, and Kelly's not more than a half a step behind those two. So when he asks you a question, he he pretty much knows the answer. If you don't, don't dance with him. Just look at him and say, sir, I don't know. I will find out and get back to you. And you'll go into his little book, and then go yeah. find out and come back. I you, yeah. you said you didn't. And saying that, but a lot of people don't like to say that in public. No, I learned that. I mean, you just uh, – I mentioned it in the book in a couple places because when I was the uh, briefer for Sportskopf, uh, you know, when you're getting these off-the-wall questions from the press and you're on TV, so, you know, it's not like you're going to 
uh, you can disappear into a back room and come out with an answer. Right. But the, the toughest thing is, you know, here you are. I was a one star at that time. And, you know, you're expected to be all-knowing and everything, and they ask you this damn off-the-wall <laughs> question. You know, you had to you had to suck it up and say, geez, I don't know the answer to that, but let me get back to you. And then you had to make sure that you wrote down, get back to whatever the, the, the uh, reporter's name was, get back to him with the answer, because then, then you gained their trust. And once you gained their trust in that environment in particular – that was uh, that's the golden nuggets for success because then they trust you that when they hear it coming across the stage from from you to them they know they can take it to the bank. I want to I want to come back to that. So I just wrote myself a note. Um, but but um, you're selected. Uh, you were selected and uh, and then promoted um, uh, to brigadier general. You're uh, you're promoted by General Gray. Um, and again, you're, it's one of these cool things about the Marine Corps. It's not that big and it tends to get smaller the longer you stay in. Uh, that must have been on a personal note. I mean, uh, he was a major when you were a second lieutenant, uh, coming out of that, uh, third Marine division briefing where you felt like they had tried to hang, hang, uh, what happened, uh, at, uh, um, on the 30th and 31st on your CO and, and you had defended him. And then after that, uh, there wasn't much discussion, and then uh, and then this major by the name of Gray set you down and kind of pricks your, uh, picks your brain about it. Uh, what was it like to be uh, to be promoted by him? I was uh, <laughs> such a thing as frosting on the cake. Uh, he, I kind of I was in his division as a battalion commander. Um, he knew me. Uh, I was his director at AWS, uh, you know, carrying his message of maneuver warfare. So he and I, our relationship went back from way back in uh, '67, uh, and obviously he he either put me in a little black book or at least had a good memory enough to kind of watch over me. I used to call him my my godfather, but you know, I kind of watch over me. He had he had his coterie of folks that um, he had been watching all through his career that, um, you know, the Zinnies, the Sheehans, uh, the Myatts, uh, he had those guys, uh, and I guess I was one of them that he kind of turned to when the good jobs opened up or he thought that uh, we had the expertise that uh, that he wanted in that particular position. So, yeah, it was it was wonderful. He invited uh, General Deskilker, who was there with me, so so I had the two of them there, and uh, they promoted me, of wow. course. And uh, yeah, that was special. That was real special. And, and that relationship has continued uh, to this day. You still stay in touch with General Gray? Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm going to his 90th birthday party in about four weeks. Wow. <laughs> wow. The um, I want to ask you about being the director of AWS because that was a. Uh, um, General Gray, one of the one of the things, and we talked about it in in, in the other interview, but um, you know he he's kind of a rough, gruff, and tumble guy. But what he doesn't get, I don't think he gets enough credit for, is is the intellectual renaissance that he created in the Marine Corps. You were a piece of that, and there was there was this uh, this com- I don't know if it was a competing school, but there was this attritionist two up one back thing. The Marine Corps, you know, was uh, was was either fighting or saddled with and and then there was this maneuver warfare approach that was you know espoused by Bill Lind and and there was just this so were you there at the basic school when General Colonel Zinni uh, when he just come from Ninth Marines when he did his PME because General Van Riper was there 
and it's no, I wasn't there. No. Okay, because you were you were mentioned you mentioned it, and one of the funniest things is that Ben Riper's sitting there. I think Colonel Ripley might be there, and Bill Linder sitting somewhat together off to the side. And uh, and General Zinni's talking about the PME he did with Ninth Marines in in uh, in uh, in, in uh, Okinawa, and he said, you know, Okinawa is different. We're not encumbered by dependents, you know, so we can have a robust, you know, PME. It starts late in the afternoon. Uh, it goes through dinner and drink a beer, and then out into Kinville. It's awesome. And he said, and so I used to do uh, battlefields. Uh, something leadership thing, and one time I bring uh, in General uh, Colonel Van Riper, Colonel Ripley, and I can't remember, Bill Fike, I think was the other one. He says, and then he says this. He says they called one the Prussian, they called one the philosopher, and one the surfer. And then he looks over, at, he looks over at General Van Riper, and he says, "Don't wax your board, General." <laughs> and with that, he was so. Funny, but Zinni made fun of Bill Lind all night because the Marine Corps had this, just this natural, I think, hatred of Bill Lind uh, because he was everything we weren't. He was just snarky. Uh, well, we're sarcastic, but he was he wasn't part of our club. He was incredibly critical of us and dismissive of things that we would do, and there was just this. Robust hatred, and Zinni combined this, kind of making fun of him, but kind of embracing him throughout the whole night. You were a part of that, trying to sell the Marine Corps maneuver warfare, when a lot of guys in the Marine Corps were not buying it and didn't, and didn't like the idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Bill Lynn, of course, I had uh make presentations a couple times at AWS, as I did with John Boyd. Um, uh, basically, Van Riper and I were sent down to Quantico, me at the AWSC at uh, Command and Staff College, uh, to basically uh, carry the, the message of General Gray, which was uh, maneuver warfare was uh, something that we were going to study and we were going to embrace. And the FM, FMFM series of pamphlets reinforced that. Bill was, uh, you, you know, I, I had a real run-in with him because he just... Um, he was uh, obnoxious, uh, sarcastic. Uh, I liken it to, uh, you know, you invite him into your house and uh, for dinner, and just as he's leaving, he says the food was lousy. You know, he same thing would apply. He would come into AWS, and instead of um, trying to uh, spread the word about maneuver warfare and its benefits and its uh, warfighting, uh, look, he always was just poking people in the eye and... Uh, yeah, he created a lot of a, a cadre of people that, that completely embraced maneuver warfare, but uh, he could have done it a lot easier uh, and, and with a lot, a lot better results if, in fact, uh, he, he became an apostle and an advocate rather than uh, a guy that just seemed to just uh, love to make fun of people or to ridicule approaches or to... Uh, if it wasn't his way, uh, it was the highway. So, yeah, he was he was uh, he, he was perfect for the time. Um, but as I said, uh, I really got pissed at him. I think the last time I had him at the as a as a guest speaker, when he just got up there and kind of you know was making fun of uh, either Van Riper or about uh, something that was being taught at AWS or Command and Staff College, and I kind of. 
went after him back in my office once we uh, once the class was over. But I learned a lot from him, and uh, and I think he, he contributed because of General Gray's influence. He contributed to the embracing of maneuver warfare as as the way to do business in the Marine Corps. The um, that's just um, that's just the way the Marine Corps is today. Are you um, when you see the discussions that, that will take place, whether it be in the Gazette or in proceedings or in other different public venues? Um, do you smile to yourself knowing you, you had a little bit of something to do with it? Because um, you know where we are in terms of the way we think about warfare is incredibly different than the way that that. that that you that it was thought about during Vietnam and 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 uh, I know there's there's that you you talk about this at, towards the end of your book but I'll but I'll ask you about it now um, that command and control system you know had it been in place that night um, or or the the afternoon of the thirtieth might have been completely different and if this was my intent my intent is to conduct ambushes in the vicinity to interdict movement. You know, the 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 Captain Gettler might he not he might not have even got on the radio to said, Hey, I'm I'm you know, he he would have just done it. Done what he thought was best to achieve the intent. Um are you mindful of that as the years have gone by, not putting something better in place so that those things don't happen? Yeah, I think that was that was um probably one of the pivotal things that caused me to probably stay in was to try and figure out how we can do things better, wiser, uh, and, and, and not uh, let uh, our people become, uh, you know, the, the beneficiaries of poor leadership. And, uh, and that in fact, uh, we push down that leadership to the lowest level because the guy that's on the ground where the situation is well in hand, is well understood, uh, if he has a commander's intent in mind, then he doesn't need to go back up and say, hey, I'm going to do it this way or that way. He just, he just tells them what he's doing and, and, and gets on with it. And, uh, I fear sometimes now that, uh, some, somewhat with the new technology that's, uh, coming in, in, in into being, and you said drones and stuff are going to give us better situational awareness. It's also going to give the senior leadership better situational awareness, and they may start directing traffic again, which uh, could be really uh, frightening and counter to what the uh, commander's intent and uh, distributed ops are really all about. You know what, sir, it's interesting you say that because uh, my last time in Afghanistan, um, I was running the Combat Operations Center for 5th Marine Regiment, and um, we now communicate in chat rooms. Well, you can sit in there as the as the MEF forward commander, and you can watch a a a platoon talking to the company. You and you know we call it being a voyeur, you know. And then and then all of a sudden somebody calls down from division that wants to know what Alpha Company's doing, you know. And you say, wait a minute, like what are you talking about? Well, hey, we saw this, and it's like, hey, you're you're welcome to to watch that for your own situational awareness. But don't ever yeah. call, don't ever call us again. They have a commanding officer of not only the company but the battalion, 
But yeah. and if, but if you don't have those kind of people, if I'm the next guy in the food chain, and I said and I say, hey, get that goddamn Captain Neil on the phone. What is he doing down there? I mean, you're right. That's potentially you have that kind of visibility into what they're doing, and it can go. Yeah, that causes me. Yeah, that 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 causes me some concern. Actually, I was talking to the commandant about it uh, last week. I went to a dinner, and uh, he and I were sitting at the same table, and uh, he feels like. Um, He's got it under control, but it also is, you know, it is something that you have to keep an eye on because uh, these guys are sort of like, um, you know, we've got GPS, but we better not forget how to use one's out of compass if somebody's got <laughs> a good weapon system that can put out, knock out our satellites, and all of a sudden you've got to be a, rely on a, on, a, on a good old one's out of compass to make sure you can get around with a, with a, with a map in, in your hand. So, yeah, there's... Technology is, is a boon, but it also could be a bust if it's not well controlled and well understood. And, and if we ever fall away from uh, the, the precepts of maneuver warfare, we we could be in, in a real uh, a mess. Uh, my guest is very graciously is a retired former assistant commandant of the Marine Corps, retired Marine Corps general. Butch Neal, and uh, been gracious enough. We're talking about his book. It's available uh, any place you look. It's entitled uh, What Now, Lieutenant? And uh, it's a question that you first hear when you go to uh, the basic school, and uh, and, uh, and and I think that uh, he talks about his career, all of his What Now, Lieutenant moments, and in the book, and it's 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 a it's a great read. And first of all, he's an everyday guy, just so you know. He's from Hull, Mass. So look it up, all right? It's uh, it's not to be confused with Beacon Hill. Uh, I will tell you that if you don't if you know your Boston geography, and uh, he's a normal human being, and uh, and 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 went from uh, from being a, a trash man to the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. And uh, I want to talk about you being a rock star uh, as a result of, of Desert Storm. Um, Desert Storm, all of a sudden, you know, CENTCOM, this is now CENTCOM becomes front and center and has stayed that way uh, ever since the early 90s. So um, talk about uh, you, you head up to PP&O and then, uh, and then off you go to war. And then, and, and then before we kind of talk about the, the, being overseas, you talk about in the book, I thought it interesting because I, I say this, um, you talk about saying goodbye and not knowing if you're ever going to come home. You didn't have that same experience because you were single uh, uh, when you went to uh, uh, when you went to uh, to Vietnam. Uh, I guess the first time, but you you mentioned it specifically then. And you know, people say ask, oh, well, what's the scariest part? And and I say, and, and maybe it, it, that part spoke to me. I always say saying goodbye to your wife and kids and not knowing if you're going to see them again, not knowing if you're going to smell their dirty hair or, or feel them hug you again is terrifying. You know, what you do professionally, I think all of us are confident uh, in, in our ability. We're confident in each other. We're confident in, in, in the team we go fight with. But uh, that uncertainty and, and looking at the, those that you love is, is, is pretty terrifying. Uh, I'd be curious. You included it in in the book. I'm 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 curious about your thoughts on that. Well, I think where you're you're talking about is when we were going to uh, Desert Storm, and um, it was sort of an open-ended contract, and um, we didn't know at that time um, how long. I was being I was deemed in, as they say, uh, basically General Schwarzkopf went to the Joint Staff uh, through uh, Chairman Powell and said, you know what. Uh, 
I don't have anybody with ground combat experience in my three shop except myself. And uh, he wanted either an Army or a, or a Marine officer with ground combat experience uh, to uh, to be the Deputy J3, uh, uh, Deputy Ops. And um, with General Gray seized upon me right away because uh, obviously I had ground combat experience and, and more importantly I spent three years down at CENTCOM as a as a young colonel, brand new colonel, and uh, during those three years, two of the years I spent almost exclusively in the region uh, teaching the different uh, militaries over there how to do uh, uh, military planning. And so he wanted to nominate me, and I guess the Army, I'm sure, nominated, but Schwarzkopf picked me, surprisingly, probably not surprisingly given my background because of those years in CENTCOM. So over I went. I was beamed in and, uh, and uh, enjoyed a good, a, a good time with him. But going back to your question, because I was just getting beamed in, my wife drove me over, my, one of my, my youngest daughter drove me over to, um, um, where the hell's over Delaware? Uh, Dover. 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 Yeah, drove me over to Dover, and basically I got on a plane, and uh, I was the only one on the plane because it was carrying ammunition. <laughs> the C-5 too is the biggest, the biggest plane we have in the inventory, and uh, you know, at that time I didn't know if I'd see my wife or ki- uh, when I would see my wife and kids again because uh, it was an open-ended contract, and we didn't know what Saddam Hussein had in store for us once so the decision was made to uh, either we attack or he attacks or both. So, yeah, it was kind of interesting. It, it was a sobering thought, but you kind of, as a professional, you know, military guy, I had made choices with my wife years ago, and I left her with a four-month-old son uh, when I went to uh, Vietnam the second time. So. She was kind of up for it. I had done a one-year tour at Okinawa uh, with all three kids around the house at that time. So, of course, it was a more secure environment. And I guess it was really the fear of the unknown, what we're going, what we're getting into as far as what would Desert Shield turn into as Desert Storm and and what would the impact be where we were going to be stationed. So, yeah, it was it was a sobering time. There's no doubt about it. Well, um, you um, seem like you had a, a a from the start um, had a, had a, had a special kind of rapport based on shared experiences with General Schwarzkopf. Um, uh, talk about that. And 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 uh, throughout throughout the the chapters that that you write about Desert Storm. Uh, you talk about his leadership uh, uh, capability or his leadership abilities, and and how he had to exercise those, whether it be uh, with with the forces under his command, with other governments that were part of the coalition, and their leaders that that, that were part of the coalition, and with the uh, American uh, political figures as well as foreign political leaders. Uh, that was no small event that uh, that he ran roughshod on. Talk about him and your relationship with him. Are we. We hit it off really well. Um, he uh, he had been an advisor as well to the Arvin. Uh, of course, I had been an advisor, so um, you know that was almost right from when I first walked in. It was obvious that he had uh, the Marine Corps had sent uh, my my uh, uh, profile to him, so he had all that information of what uh, what I had done or not done over the course of uh, I guess probably about 25 years at that particular time. Um, 
So he was very knowledgeable about that, asked me all about it. He was real real pleased that I was going to be there because he, he, at the end of the day, he saw the battle was going to be boots on the ground into uh, into Kuwait and then ultimately maybe into Iraq if that's what uh, that's what uh, needed to be done in order to uh, liberate Kuwait. So we hit it off really well. Uh, he asked me to do a kind of a behind the behind the screen look at the command just to see if in fact it was ready to go to war and uh, I really didn't want to do that because you know being being in number one you don't know how you're going to be received but if they find out that you're going around snooping <laughs> and reporting back to the old man that doesn't that doesn't ingratiate you with the with the other folks in the command but I did as he requested I came back to him and I just said you know my only concern is they seem to be as if they're still in uh, Tampa Florida that uh, they never left except they can't go home at night. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that they're ready to give you war fighting information from which you can make war fighting decisions. And, he, you know, he got all excited. God damn it. He's yelling and screaming. He said, that's exactly the way I feel. Fortunately, his chief of staff, uh, Major General um, Bob Johnson, was already on it and working to correct it. I just confirmed what Johnson had already been working on quietly, I think, Uh so, yeah, uh, Schwarzkopf and I got along really well. I think it was because of our similar backgrounds. Uh, he was a he was a perfect guy for the moment uh, because he had a great way of working with the coalition forces. He knew all of the commanders, his component commanders, of course. Uh, he had done one exercise called Internal Look that sort of looked at um, – that type of scenario where they might have to deploy, although I must admit, uh, while I was down at CENTCOM, it was not a deployable headquarters. I don't think we ever really even thought that it would deploy. If you look at PACOM and and uh, and UCOM, they're both in their AOR. They're out there located. And, of course, we were many, many miles away uh, in Tampa, Florida, looking out over the, uh, the region where we're, our AOR area of responsibility was. So there was a lot of <laughs> turning and burning, getting a, deploying the headquarters over there, getting settled in. Fortunately, the infrastructure in Saudi Arabia uh, was was just waiting for people. Maybe that's why it was built. It was just waiting for folks like us to move into. So there was a lot of infrastructure that allowed us to bird the troops that were in the headquarters elements, and there was a lot of plug-and-play just getting uh, set up for going to war. So it was... A fascinating time working for him. Uh, I, uh, I learned a lot from him, and uh, and uh, uh, it was it was a great relationship. Um, one of the things that that you talk about uh, in the book um, is it is kind of a horizontal theme to the book is eyeball to eyeball leadership, and mm-hmm. um, you have a confrontation with your boss, the J three. Um, Talk to explain how you handle those confrontations because you know I will tell you I will echo your sentiment. I remember going with the division. We relieved the 82nd Airborne in um, in February of 2000 and uh, uh, 2004. The guys who came in August September, if you can imagine coming late to a party and having guys like General Mattis sitting there. Um, it's very in, in, intimidating. Um, and I can tell you stories about guys who, who, 
You know, the last couple of days that Joe Mass was there, called in, they were sick in quarters because they couldn't. Mm-hmm. They, they they were just waiting till he left because it was such an emotional burden for them. So coming in late is, as I would echo it, it's hard. Everybody else knows the names of the cities and all the rest of that, and you're kind of getting spun up. But you were at CENCOM, so that probably wasn't an issue for you. But for other guys, it is. And all of a sudden, and you're in one of those jobs, and you're supposed to perform and and whatnot. But you have. It seems like you have these confrontations. And and but you they don't they never stop you. What's the is there an art to, to confrontation as you practice it, Butch? How, I mean, how did how did you? Because you're no stranger to button heads, yet you you seem to find a way to do it, and that it doesn't become a catastrophic explosion. That it, that you you're able to manage it. How do you do that? Is it part eyeball to eyeball leadership, and people respect that? Um, your thoughts. Yeah, I think it, it probably is uh, eyeball to eyeball leadership. Um, it's 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 looking people in the eye and uh, and being candid with them and and I think uh, gaining their trust. Uh, the incident you talked about, uh, the J three, I think he initially thought that um, that Schwarzkopf. I don't for some reason he and Schwarzkopf didn't have a great relationship, and I think he sort of felt like. Uh, he brought me in with the idea of replacing him. And, uh, you know, I had to be real honest with him and just tell him that, hey, I'm not here to replace you. I'm here to help you. Uh, your boss, uh, our boss wanted me in here uh, because of my ground combat experience. You're an Air Force guy. You're going to be able to give him all the best advice as far as the utilization of, uh, of not only Air Force air, but all of the air components. So, um you know, we, we've got to work together. And I said, you know, if you if you feel so threatened, uh, then I'll go see the old man and and, uh, and and ask to be transferred back to the Marine Corps over on the, on the East Coast. And you know, that kind of caught him by surprise. And he said, "Are you threatening me?" I said, "No, I'm not threatening you. I'm just telling you the truth. I'm not gonna. I can't uh, work in this type of environment." So, you know, that seemed to calm the water. It's sort of like when I said to General Chris, uh, I may, may be naive, but I don't believe I'm wrong, you know, it's just basically laying the cards on the table. I guess the fortunate thing is that um, in both cases, both Chris and with the uh, J3, it, it's, it calmed the water, and, and, you know, we proceeded to do our jobs in a professional way. So I guess, uh, I guess the lesson is that uh, don't be hesitant to stick up uh, – if you're right, and uh, and 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 don't be hesitant to to uh, go forward. If in fact that's what it, it requires, you become for a lot of people. You become the face of Desert Storm. Um, it gives people some background on how that happened, and then the media uh, now is a twenty. It's not like the media of Vietnam where. Walter Cronkite came on at 5 o'clock and, and did, you know, 30 minutes of national news. You know, really it's the first wall-to-wall news in, in American history, and you're kind of at the, at, at the forefront of all that. Tell people how that happened, and then how do you manage the, the 24-hour news cycle? Because so much of what they do in search of content to fill up 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is wrong. I can remember watching them in when in Iraq, thinking, "What are they talking about?" And it was, it was the story was just this crooked-nosed guy on CNN who was a Brit, 
you know, the story. Under the nose of coalition forces just south of Baghdad, 120 civilian workers were kidnapped today. And we're like, what's going on? Like, that's, that's, that's Colonel Johnson and 24th Mew or somebody, I think it was them. Like, get them on the phone and call them up. Like, hey, what's going on? What is that guy talking about? Like, oh, it's a chamber of commerce dispute, you know. We fixed the road, and the shake owns the road. The other shake owns the glass factory. The the glass factory added a swing shift. The guy who owns the road wants more money. They said, the, the, the glass factory guy says no, so he kidnapped the whole swing shift. <laughs> but that was... <laughs> That was the depth of knowledge, and that was yeah. the under the and, and you're 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 expected to deal with this and the fallout of of this inept force, and it's like you know the American people don't have a chance because the reporting's so uh, so brutal. But you, you had the first, you had the you had the world's first experience with that. Um, how did how did you deal with that? Yeah, we. I always claim that. Uh, Probably Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm really uh, uh, gave birth to the CNN and to cable news. Uh, up until that time, I really didn't know too much about CNN. Um, but we found out in a hurry that uh, CNN was going to be, like you said, there 24 hours a day, and uh, most of it live, uh, both from in the region and from back in the state. And no one understood that better than probably Chairman Powell um, in D.C. And uh, he just basically, he had to really put the pressure on uh, General Schwarzkopf because um, General Schwarzkopf and a lot of people, like Powell and others, uh, uh, they still had the legacy of the press not treating them well during Vietnam. And uh, so, and, you know, turning the tide, making uh, making accusations, but in fact maybe... Uh, they weren't as close to the truth as they might be. So I think there was a General General Schwarzkopf initially was reticent about um, helping the press in any way, shape, or form. Powell was quite the opposite. He learned from his position as chairman that the power of the press and and feeding that 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 power uh, was to your advantage. If you had the strategic message, the strategic comms, that was important for for you as a warfighter to make sure you control the new, not control it so much as you provided the stories rather than having them make up uh, the story. So as a result of that, uh, the, the position of the, of the briefer for the command was critically important. We didn't do very good initially. We put, uh, I think, the, the J3 tried it, uh, then a couple other officers tried it, and they weren't doing well at all, and Powell was getting really uh, mad with the sink. And uh, then we we tried uh, the chief of staff, Bob Johnson, Major Major General Bob Johnson, and, and I thought he did a, a good job, but he also had, you know, he had his full-time job of uh, being the chief of staff, and plus he... He wasn't as up to speed with the current ops as as probably I was because I was the deputy for operations. So he suggested that uh, to Schwarzkopf that he have me that he and I do it. I do it one day, he do it the next day. And Schwarzkopf initially refused because he thought I was too busy. But then uh, things were just not working out. So I did it once and it went okay. Um, 
And the next thing I knew, it was he, he, he just uh, he just said I was it. I was going to do it from now on. And Powell was happy with that decision. And basically, it wasn't very difficult for me because, um, as I said, I knew everything. Maybe that was the most difficult part was making sure that I did uh, didn't in any way uh, put troops or operations at risk as a result of me saying something that could. Uh, that could be counter counterproductive to our efforts. So I had a murder board every day and uh, sat down with him for about an hour, and the public affairs people would be out uh, working the press trying to figure out what the topical issues were for that particular day, and then uh, they would ask me questions in this murder board, and um, uh, I would, nine times out of ten, I knew the answers to the questions. If I didn't know the answer, then they would do the research and hopefully get me the answer before I went live on on, on the international briefings every night, uh, night our time. So that was kind of neat. Um, yeah, my wife said, you don't know you're everywhere, you know, radio, <laughs> TV, uh, in the press, on the newspapers and stuff. Because, you know, it was the first time we really had done it uh, to that extreme Um we had done a little bit in Vietnam, but nothing like this where it was a daily briefing. And so, yeah, I was everywhere. I had two kids in college. They saw me. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of a hoot. <laughs> what, um, talk about operational security in a 24-7 hour environment where the American media seems to have no problem with throwing uh, everything from Keiko calls to operational uh, sightings. Uh, on onto television. Uh, do you have any th- advice, thoughts? You've seen it in 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 Vietnam. You've seen it in Desert Storm and and in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and any thoughts on dealing with the media? I think the only thing, the only advice I I gave it to Vince. Uh, I think his name was Fisher. Uh, Vince, uh, I can't remember his name. He's a four star now in career, I think. But he, um, the only advice I said, you know, you have to, you're. Um, the weight of your comments are really is uh, gaining the trust of the press. So you have to be truthful. Now, you know, when you don't know the answer, you got to be able to say, I don't know. And when you say, I can't tell you because of operational security, if you've established that relationship as a result of dealing with them uh, face up on a routine basis, I think it works. You're right. Um, they sometimes, uh, because of the 24-hour news cycle and trying to be first, um, they sometimes will report something. And as we all know, um, first reports are never right. You know, they, they just um, – it takes a while to sort out the details. Uh, I thought the other day uh, – well, now it's been about almost a uh, six, maybe even a year uh, – when Dunford, when they had the, uh, the Niger right. incident and the four, four soldiers were killed, and uh, it became a you know a hot topic in this town, in D.C. and around the country when you lose four uh, soldiers. And uh, Dunford, to his credit, you know, right on national TV, he says, "I don't have all the facts right now. We're sorting it out, and I'll get back to you with the facts." Which, of course, he, he eventually did. Right. Um, you know, coming from the chairman, that, that's that's pretty powerful, and that's the way you're in the trust of the press. In fact, you go right up in front and say, "Hey, we don't know why it occurred." We're going to find out why it occurred. We're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I'll get back to you with a, with a chapter and verse. And I think that's the way you deal with them. I, um, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, um, 
Major General Dave Furness, who's about to take over 2nd Marine Division. And I was telling him about our conversation and, and reading your book. And, and um, the highway of death, um, you know, uh, leading, what, northwest out of Baghdad, out of uh, Kuwait City, um, becomes this incredible footage that, that – talk to us about the impact it has on the operation – because it's pretty interesting. I mean, we've seen stuff like that historically. For instance, uh, the lagoon at Tarawa did not get released until I want to say 1946. Mm-hmm. Now, now in the you know now you have uh, footage of, of of what's going on in theater uh, appearing on television, and and the world yeah, I mean, and, was, and the world reacts to that. Yeah, that was uh, you know initially everybody's saying, oh look at it, we're Kicking these guys, but uh, you know they're paying the price for invading a you know a peaceful country. And then then after a while, you know after you keep seeing that and you keep seeing this uh, uh, the carnage associated with it, it didn't seem like it was a fair fight. And uh, you know it really concerned you know what turned out to be something you know oh great we're winning this battle turned out to be something that we had to be very sensitive about because. Uh, the coalition. We didn't want to break up the coalition with um, with comments that maybe we're piling on, you know. And so, you know, even as bad as Saddam Hussein and the Republican Guard forces were, um, maybe maybe we got to uh, get this thing off the front page and get this idea of the highway of death off the screen. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, things just spiral out of control very quickly now as a result of. Uh, you know, 24, 24 hour news cycle, and then these trendy phase, uh, phrases like "highway of death" or right. something similar to that. You know, that that's not going to sell. Uh, it may sell newspapers, but it's not going to sell the American public well. Interesting. Um, a couple more points, and then uh, and then and then, and then we'll we'll move to finish up. And so I appreciate your time. Very gracious. Um, um, you come home. Uh, no, let me ask you about being, keeping that thing synchronized. So you're an ops guy. Um, you know, you have the Marines pushing up towards Kuwait City. You know, you have uh, the infamous left hook. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and you're moving at speeds. The Marines are making better time than anybody thinks. Uh, I think, you know, everybody's waiting for the chemical weapons to be fired, um, and, and that hasn't happened yet. Uh, how, did, how did you guys keep that was it as simple as, as as keep you know sticking to your sync matrix, slowing people down, speeding people up? How did you keep something like that synchronized? Well, we obviously had a, a, a synchronization matrix, right. as you pointed out, uh, and uh, you know Schwarzkopf had that thing right in front of him at spades and was watching it all the time. And of course, uh, the success of the Marines uh, with the Tiger Brigade uh, moving so quickly. Uh, kind of screwed up the, the the execution of the left hook because uh, Tommy Franks, who um, uh, no, yeah, yeah, Franks, yeah, he uh, he he was moving slower with Seventh Corps, and uh, I'll tell you, Schwarzkopf got on the horn and really, <laughs> in no uncertain terms, said, "You got to get moving, or this thing's going to get you know way out of whack, and we could be." Uh, setting up the conditions for friendly fire um, events. And so, yeah, it was um, 
technology helped, obviously, because communications were good. We were able to stay in calm with them and keep things moving and trying to make sure that we we kept the uh, the scheme of maneuver on time and on schedule and uh, being executed at the right pace. But uh, yeah, it was it was difficult. And I, I look some of the position reports weren't as good as they could have been, but um, uh, that's just the fog of war. The um, you and your peer group had fought since probably 19 since you came back from Vietnam. Put a date on that for different for different people, but uh, had fought to keep America from getting in another protracted uh, war like Vietnam, and you must have been pretty. I, I, I can't imagine how professionally satisfied you guys were on the backside of Desert Storm because there were, there was a limited objective. Um, it was it was well defined. It seemed like the politicians stayed out of of, of the way after they had defined uh, the, the 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 end state. Um, it must have been professionally a great feeling after um, you know what 30 years previous to that you know the, the coming out of vietnam uh, professionally that you guys had changed the system so much and 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 set the conditions at least had 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 this public discussions about the way it ought to be done and and, and how it ought to be laid out um did you reflect on that after after it in that this this was done the right way and 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 it's much to the credit of vietnam veterans that it was yeah i think it was a there was a sense of satisfaction that um, um, the learning curve from 1975 until 1991 obviously was steep. Um, we learned from the lessons of um, Vietnam, and all of us were, most of all, the leadership, at, at least at the general officer level, were Vietnam veterans. And uh, yeah, there was a there was a there was a there was a sense of satisfaction that, in fact. Uh, uh, all of that technological enhancements and equipment, um, the overwhelming force uh, advocated by uh, Chairman Powell, um, the sort of the going to the um, uh, the book, the General's War, basically uh, uh, President Bush kind of let his Secretary of Defense uh, Cheney and and let uh, his warfighting folks uh, led by Chairman Powell. Thank God for Chairman Powell. He was there. He was the settling influence back here in D.C. Um, let them kind of, uh, you know, call the, call the shots and fight the battle and uh, let, let Schwarzkopf, with a little bit of rudder from uh, <clears throat> Cheney and from Powell, basically let him run the war that, uh, that he wanted to fight the way he wanted to fight it. So, yeah, it was very satisfying, uh, particularly when it was over. You know, we were... Right. Uh, we weren't slapping each other on the back, but we were we were real happy with how we had how it had been planned and how it had been executed. When you saw the way that we went to war in Iraq and and and, and broadening the war in Afghanistan, um, did you have as you watched the, that? I mean, I think that that we've strayed a little bit from that path. I, I you know I've had General Zinni on and. You know, he's told me, you know, he said, Mac, you know, the frustrating part about Iraq was that everything that's happened was predicted to happen in the war plan. 
but you know we but we tore the war plan up and we wrote a different one and uh yeah we got a little bit of home you know getting home itis and right. uh you know it's a wrap and uh we forgot about phase five stability operations and uh uh yeah that's disappointing because uh, uh those are things that uh, heck i can remember when i was with them uh Magtaf staff planning group as a senior as a senior mentor for the marine corps and uh you know, one of the things we were emphasizing was stability operations. You, you know, it's not the fun stuff. It's not the fix bayonets and charge ahead, uh, or, you know, pedal pedal to the metal uh, with your tanks and stuff. It's really the, the nuts and bolts stuff of getting um, countries reestablished and getting governments going and getting all of the different outfits and branches and divisions that make up a government to make sure that they can function and meet the needs of the people. We kind of forgot that. And... Uh, and in our haste uh, to fix bayonets and win the 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 offensive part, we forgot about the stability part, and and we left too early and and kind of left things in a mess. Well, I you know it's it's interesting to have you know and then to to talk about General Newbold, and uh, I'm I'm curious about your thoughts, sir, on on, on when general officers disagree. Um, there's a fair amount of debate on, on, you know, again, I say, I talk about being in Afghanistan. You know, whoever decided that we should expand the ground war in Afghanistan is attempting to create something that's never been created in the history of that nation. And so if Germany and Japan were 60 years events, what is Afghanistan? 160? 160? Yeah. Are we prepared to do that? And if we're not prepared to do that, I didn't go to Yale or Harvard. Right, I went to a, a, a Catholic school that guys with C plus B minuses average in high school could get into here in, at the University of San Diego. But I'm nobody's dummy. Okay, I can add and subtract, and and it's immoral for us to ask young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to die and then to walk away. And what do yeah. we t- what do we tell their parents? Because yeah. again, so at, at the OPT is. You know, like I'm. I think it's a great idea, but what if it doesn't work? And what about this? Is the American public, are is everybody read in on this? Are we going to do this? And I think it's we've strayed from the lessons of Vietnam, sir. I think it's very, very disappointing, and we've destabilized the entire Middle East now uh, with you know the war, a war in Iraq that spread into Syria, and, uh, and and shows you know now we have Israel staring at uh, at Iran. So it's it's um, I don't know. I I I, I kind of for a Vietnam veteran who worked so hard to, to, to keep the country out of senseless wars, and if we're going to go define it and let us do it, and then to see us, it seems like, drop the ball as an institution uh, and not focus on phase four, and, and, and you go to war to win the peace and not get that done, it, it, and it doesn't, it's not good. And, and it's not yeah. good when the United States is diminished because with all of our warts, nobody's even close to us in terms of doing good things around the country, so... Your thoughts on any of that? I know I'm. No, no, you're not. I'm venting. I don't disagree with you at all. In fact, I agree with 99% of what you said. Uh, we haven't. Uh, we've fallen off the, from. You know, we, we experienced great success with Desert Shield and Desert Storm. You know, some would argue we should have went to Baghdad, uh, but that's an argument for another day. Right. But then the second time we went over there, uh, we we basically went over there, did the job again, and and this time we really, by not thinking through how do we help this country recover 
talking about Iraq. Right. How do we help this country? Basically, we, we, we left in a hurry and, and left the situation with worse than when we went over the first time around. So, yeah, we've, we've kind of gone astray from thinking through um, not only the the fighting part about it, but the stabilization part about it. We, we, we've thought about it. We haven't, we haven't really uh, come to grips with the other elements of national power, diplomacy, economic, judicial, and not just the war fighting part. So we've still got a ways to go, and the learning curve is still pretty damn steep. All right, I have two more questions for you. Um, yeah, I'm running out of time. CG, I'm, uh, as I said, I could do this all day. You're a fascinating guy with a fascinating life. <laughs> CG of the 2nd Marine Division, um, as you rise up through – um, through, through echelons of command, does it change how you're able to command? Um, because you can't read. There's a lot of people that you want to reach, but you can't reach that many in a day or, or in a month. Is there a difference in terms of style, or is it just your same style? You keep doing it, and you get after it, and, and you, you have to animate more subordinates um, at, at higher levels. How do you do it? Um. I don't. I don't think it changes that much. I think uh, you, you relinquish control a little bit by depending. You know, you delegate and you depend on your chief of staff to take care of that paperwork that you'll sign. You know, when you get back in the office. But I think uh, the requirement, you know, for eyeball level leadership is just as demanding as a battery commander, a battalion commander, brigade commander, or a division commander. And a visible presence is mandatory, and so you've got to get out and about. And uh, that's basically what I did as a division commander. But I didn't get—I didn't go through the barracks uh, to look for dust balls or broken light bulbs. I went through the barracks as a visible presence uh, to make sure that the troops knew I cared about them. I cared about their living conditions. I cared about the command climate within their respective organizations. And I and, and I was down there at the mess hall at five o'clock in the morning to make sure that the cooks had had the uh, the trays all full so that when they opened up that mess hall at five or five thirty whatever the time may be and now I guess they call it a dining facility right. that in fact the stuff is hot it's ready to to be dished out and uh, and it met the needs of the young uh, men and women called marines and sailors so. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's a change. Maybe there's a change in perspective. Some some guys uh, and gals maybe aren't as comfortable as I was in moving about the squad bays, the barracks, uh, the individual rooms, the rec halls, uh, the gym, or getting out in the morning and just running with uh, an, an organization, not even telling them I'm going to run, just end up on the tail end of their organization and run with them for whatever their PT was for that particular day, and then getting out the field. And questioning young leaders and, to, and and young PFCs about you know what's going on within that command because as you get older, more seasoned and experienced, um, you get a feeling in your fingertips as to how an organization is. You know what the command climate is without asking anybody. You can just get a sense of it. So I don't think it changes too much. Um, perspective probably a lot. You know I was looking at battalions and and. And uh, not so much at platoons uh, when I was a division commander, but even I get down to the lowest level, and you know, just uh, it's that's what kept the you know that's where job satisfaction was number one. All right, I um, 
I'm going to skip over your time as the assistant commandant. All right. We'll, we'll maybe maybe on a different time we'll cover it. Um, okay. Post combat related mental health. Um, you know, um, I, I I asked you about a map and you said I've left that apart. How? I mean, what you went through in 1967 that was men's stuff. That was that, that was grown up stuff. That was that was not little kid stuff. Um, you know, we have a big discussion now. We have a diagnosis for it in terms of post-traumatic stress. Um, mm-hmm. We have people medicated for it uh, and all kinds of things. I'm curious, um, your thoughts. Do you give advice to guys who, who, who have dealt with this and are struggling with it? Do you have thoughts on it? Um, yeah, I. my thoughts, you know, sometimes I kind of wonder why didn't uh, – I have, you know, problems basically with some of the stuff I went through that first tour in particular, maybe even the second tour uh, during the uh, event in uh, in Cambodia. But uh, I think one of the advantages I had was that I stayed within the institution, so I was I was mixing and mingling and leading and being led by people who had similar situations. So I think that 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 kind of mitigated any opportunity for PTSD probably settling in. We've always had PTSD. We've just had different names for it, shell shock, right. uh, stuff of that nature. But I think um, the young men and women that are experiencing that now, uh, uh, the only thing I keep emphasizing is, you know, you got, you got to seek professional help. You can't, you can't uh, turn away or try to think that it'll go away with time. Uh, if, if you're experiencing anxiety, suicidal type uh, thoughts, uh, you got to seek professional help, and it's not something that uh, that lessens you in the eyes of the Marine Corps. You're you're a human being first, a Marine second, and uh, we all have uh, you know strengths and weaknesses, and we have to make sure that we recognize them. And for leaders, it's an imperative that they know the signs, the early warning signs of someone that's got some problems, and. Uh, and, and taking the time to get that individual the, the professional help he needs. And, and we've got to make it abundantly clear to the young men and women that we call Marines that, you know, if they've got problems, if, if uh, you know, a shaved head and, and muscles across the body, that, that, that doesn't make you a good Marine. What makes you a good Marine is being able to um, help each other and look out for each other and make sure that if someone needs help, make sure he gets that help. Well said, sir. I mean, I don't think it's anything more than taking care of Marines and us socially uh, and institutionally adjusting to, hey, Neil's at the gym, McNamara's going to mental health, so-and-so's going to pass an ID, and nobody nobody blinking an eye at any one of those because it's honestly, it's a person that doesn't sit down and talk, that comes back from that stuff. It is probably the one that you ought to be worried about. But, uh, no, I mean, I think your your comments are spot on. All right, the, the lightning round, your favorite musical group is? The what now? Favorite, your favorite musical group is? Oh, my God. Come on, sir. You're in the 60s. Come on. Who are the grassroots? The righteous, or my favorite were the Righteous Brothers. The Righteous Brothers. All right. Favorite food? Uh, it remains a Boston hot dog. <laughs> your favorite sports team? It could only be one. It can't be a whole series of them. Uh, it can't be? No. One. The Red Sox Patriots. Nice. 
<laughs> the Bruins just lost, so they're out for a while. And no, they're uh, out. They didn't live up to expectations. <laughs> there you go. Although and, the, the Caps are doing good, so I don't know. With yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty amazing. Uh, if they could, if they could finally break through, I'm. I'm. That's. I'm. That's what I'm pulling for. I'm pulling for. Ovechkin's been through enough of his life. Maybe he can do something good. Uh, give us a good book to read, and I'll let you go. Oh, a good book. I just finished one that's kind of interesting. It's a little squirrely, but it's not bad. It's called, um, uh, what the hell's the name of it? Um, Radical, uh, Radical Inclusion. It's by the uh, former chairman of the joint staff, uh, Marty Dempsey. All right. Radical Inclusion. What's it about? It's leadership, kind of, it's a leadership book. Um, but his theory is that uh, it's written with him and an academic. Uh, the academic is, is the part that is the portion I didn't really like. But uh, but anyways, basically, it's about uh, leadership uh, being an inclusive type leadership. It basically, it's 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 an academic treatise on what now, lieutenant. <laughs> I thought that's what I thought you were going to say. Give me a good book to read. I thought you were going to say, "What the hell, Mac? What now, lieutenant?" That's the book we're talking about. The uh, Sir, look, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, I will get out of your hair. I hope you don't mind on occasion if I bug you, if we're talking about leadership or or maybe foreign affairs or something like that, and maybe come on and give me 30 minutes as opposed to a couple hours. Uh, if you don't mind, now that I have your email address, if I bug you every once in a while. No, no, no problem at all, Mac. Honestly, I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's kind of good to you know, chew these grapes over again every now and then. So, yeah, no, it's good. It's good. No, well, let me tell you. From from Hull, Massachusetts, and I, you should, if you're listening to this, look up where Hull, Massachusetts is. Okay, it is a spec, it is and uh, but uh, an, a remarkable life, uh, an honorable life, uh, a, a life full of making things better that that you touch, sir. And and the book is a great book. I, for, when I first started reading, I thought I said, okay, here's another general book. So what's he have to say? But I think the combination of being an ordinary guy. Uh, that comes from an ordinary family and uh, and fights uphill for a fair amount of time is is it makes for compelling reading and the way you write it's uh, well done so my compliments and sir I, again thank you thank you very much for for doing this appreciate it all right Mac you take care and uh, don't don't hesitate to contact me if we want to chat again okay sir take care thank you all right simplify that is Butch Neal the former assistant commandant of the United States Marine Corps, general type. The book is entitled "What Now, Lieutenant." It's an awesome read, and uh, as you as you might imagine, from somebody with that kind of career. How about that, Butch Neal, general type, United States Marine Corps retired former commandant, assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. But you know what? Just a normal, exceedingly normal, in spite of being smart and tough. Um, so uh, my thanks to him for coming on and doing that. And he's, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of living, <laughs> you know, um, you know, he's one of those guys who constantly seemed to find their way uh, into whatever was going on. But, uh, but yeah, you know, he's uh, and you read his story, um, 
he had a lot of opportunities, as a, especially as a young guy, um, to get derailed. And uh, he had an inner strength in him. And very interesting guy. And then like, his, like he was talking about, the whole, the whole CENTCOM thing, that was CENTCOM before CENTCOM was cool. You know, now, you know, we take for we take it for granted the 24-7 news cycle. We take, um, you know, they were doing it for the first time. And he became the face of, uh, of the operations briefing for Operation Desert Storm. So, became a rock star. Yeah. You know, and, I, and there's so many leadership lessons in the book, but he comes home, he throws out the first pitch of a Red Sox game. He conducts... The Boston Symphony on July 4th. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Cool stuff. And then he got to speak at his high school in Hull. So, the um, my thanks to him for coming on. If you joined us late, don't touch that dial. Uh, we're going to talk about what's going on in Gaza. The choreography of all of that. Uh, talk about Navy discipline. And uh, so talk about that a little bit. And also, uh, on Iwo Jima, getting ready to develop um, more powerful than off-the-shelf right now, ground-penetrating radar in an effort to... Um, in an effort to recover the remains of the Japanese soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, naval infantry, that uh, that are that still remain on the island. Which is going to be no small feat because of the ordinance that lies on the island as well. So, but, uh, yeah, so talk about that as well. Anyway, have a great day. We will talk to you tomorrow. On a Tuesday, All Marine Radio, out. The next segment you're about to hear is a segment that I did with General Neal. It's actually the first segment I did with him. And it's about the Battle of Getland's Corner. And um, General Neal was a lieutenant at the time, a first lieutenant. He was actually on his second tour as a Ford. Uh, observer, he requested to go to India Company 3-9. And um, he links up with them, goes to Okinawa to train with them uh, before they come back to uh, operate uh, in probably uh, the most formidable part of Vietnam at the time. And that was the northern part of I-Corps, which butted up against the DMZ. Places you've heard of, Leatherneck Square, Kantian, Dong Ha, Kaesan, are all up there, right? Marble Mountain, Camp Carroll. Uh, so all these uh, iconic names from the Vietnam War, all uh, in, in uh, the northern part of I-Corps. And so that's where India Company 3-9 goes. That's where the Battle of Getland's Corner takes place. And so what you're about to hear is uh, one of the battlefield studies I did. Uh, I did. And, um, and I, would, I would tell you that if uh, 
once you get done with this one, if you're, if you're interested, um, I did a subsequent one with Jack Riley in which we talked about um, Getland's Corner. So if you, if you just do a search on Getland's Corner, G-E-T-L-I-N, uh, you'll see the interview with Jack Riley. So if you're interested in that, I would tell you to listen to that too because um, he wrote me an email after he heard the interview with with uh, General Neal. And then I said, well, would you like to come on? And then Jack came on. And so um, anyway, uh, we will. Uh, so without further ado, uh, here's the battlefield study I did with General Neal about the Battle of Getland's Corner. All right, so uh, let me set this up. Um, General Neal got on my radar because a mutual friend said, hey, have you seen General Neal's book? I said, I have not. And sent me a link and then introduced us uh, via the email. So I emailed him and I said, hey, so I'd love to have you on and talk about your book. So uh, so we talked about him coming on, and he said, how would you like to do it? So I, I started reading some of his book, and, and uh, he talked about the events of June 30, 31, 1967, had a profound effect on him, blah, 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 blah. So I, I figured that, well, Mac, maybe you should, maybe you should, you know, dive into that. And so I did, and I asked him, I said, hey, can, uh, would you mind if we did a battlefield study on that? And, and then come back on a second time and talk about the book. And he said, not a bit. So what you're going to hear right now is, uh, is in fact, that. It's uh, the Battlefield Study with a former assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. But during the period that we're going to um, talk about today, um, he is a second lieutenant. He's an artillery officer. Yeah, he gave I gave him some grief about that. I'm like, sir, you weren't even a grunt. He goes, I know, not bad. Not bad, huh, Mac? And I, <laughs> I started up. And he, he said something like, not bad for a piece of shit arty guy, huh? I said, oh, I didn't say that. He said, yeah, I know, but you're a grunt. You guys all think alike. I said, wow. Wow. Or is that really where we're going? Where we're going? He said, look, I know you guys. It's like it's not like I haven't heard it in my life. I was like, "Oh, okay, sir." <laughs> so, so again, without further ado, um, it was my privilege, and he's a wonderful guy. You know, one of the things I, um, uh, I, I enjoy about uh, the different Marines you cross paths with—they're all different. Um, Butch Neal, and you'll hear his story. I mean, he was a garbage man as a teenager. I want to say for six years. Uh, his father had passed away. He helped support his mom and sisters, put himself through college. No, he's a normal guy, normal guy. And he did rose to great things in the Marine Corps for his country. So uh, it's my privilege to have him on, All Marine Radio. And uh, without further ado, here is uh, Richard I. You'll find out what the I stands for. Stand by for that one. And uh, Richard I. Butch Neal, uh, retired. General, United States Marine Corps, four-star type, and former assistant commandant uh, of the Marine Corps. That's that's not him, just so you know. I have to shut her up now. (laughs) 
popular segments on Almering Radio now is uh, our Battlefield Study segment. And uh, I'm honored uh, this morning to uh, have on with us um, retired Marine Corps General Butch Neal. Uh, his uh, given name is Richard, middle initial I, but I've never heard anybody in my life refer to him as anything other than either General or Butch. So, uh, sir, first of all, good morning. Uh, welcome to Almering Radio. Hi, good morning, Mac. Uh, glad to be with you today. All right. First of all, what does I stand for? That's not a very common middle initial. What did you get tagged with? Oh, my mother. I, I argued with her for a long time about that. Irving. I don't know where the hell oh. she got it. I think it was one of her favorite uncles or something. But anyways, it's Richard Irving Neal. You know what? I'm Michael Francis McNamara, which didn't get legitimate until recently. Everybody, when I was a kid, remember those stupid Francis the Talking Mule? Movies with mm-hmm. Donald O'Connor. Oh yeah. So the first day of Catholic school, Michael Francis, my friends. Yo, yo, yo. And uh, but now that the Pope Francis, it's legit. So uh, I guess when we get Pope, when we get Pope Irving, you'll be uh, you'll be in the front row. But until then, I'll be in the front row. I'll be ready to go. <laughs> the uh, the um. All right. Um. We're gonna we're gonna talk about your background a little bit. Uh, so, uh, and then we're going to bring it back. And, and uh, uh, General Neal's written a, a book that's a, that's a great read. It's called What Now, Lieutenant? And uh, for those of us who've uh, who've been lieutenants, uh, it's something that uh, we, you get po- that gets posed to you all the time. If you've ever taught lieutenants, uh, something you you certainly ask them all the time. But it's a great read. And he's going to come back, and we're going to talk about his book uh, uh, probably next week. Uh, and, but uh, today we're doing battlefield study, and, uh, and and specifically we're going to look at his time in Vietnam in 1966 and 1967, and uh, and and specifically on March 30 31st of 1967. So uh, before we get there, sir, uh, tell give everybody a, a thumbnail bio of you. Um, just Marine Corps. No, no, we need to hear about Hull, Massachusetts, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, uh, basically um, born in Hull, Mass, um, old-timer by now, but um, small town, a peninsula, that's right out in the middle of Boston, huh? and um, a great place to grow up. I was down on the end of the peninsula uh, in a place called The Village, and there's only about, uh, probably in the wintertime, about uh, seven or eight close friends that uh, that I had to play with. Now, the town, because it was a seacoast town, uh, in, the, in the winter it would get drop down to five or 6,000 people, and then in the winter it would blossom all the way up to ten to 15,000 people because they'd come in in the summer and they have uh, summer cottages. It also had an amusement park there called Paragon Park, and, uh, and a steamboat used to run from Boston down to it, uh, dropping off sometimes a thousand people at a whack, and they would go and enjoy the beach and enjoy the amusement park, and then get back on the boat and go back up to Boston at the end of the day. Anyways, uh, went to high school there, Howe High School, and then on graduation from there was accepted at Northeastern University. Uh, it's a five-year cooperative edu- education school for those not familiar with it, basically. Northeastern, uh, your first year uh, is traditional one year of uh, college courses, and then the next four years uh, they alternate between a job uh, that is some hopefully 
connected to what your major is in college, and uh, it's a way for you to earn money enough to hopefully pay for your tuition while at the same time getting on-the-job training. And then you would go back to school for a semester and then back out to work in the same place or a different one, depending upon what your major was and so on and so forth for four more years. So that's how I did it. Uh, got my education. My dad had died when I was 14, and so we really didn't have any money. So this worked out to be uh, a great way to uh, get through college. And it allowed me to um, – I had a job in the town. I was a – a rubbish garbage man for, I guess, about six years uh, uh, while in college and, and you know, before college, and that that, uh, that allowed me to generate income not only to help my mom uh, take care of my two sisters, but at the same time allowed me to pay my tuition. So when I graduated, I was pretty much debt-free. While there at, at Northeastern, I joined the ROTC, Army ROTC program, uh, but my, I was a commuter. We were commuting 30 miles each way every day. Uh, so my, my other carpoolies, uh, my schedule with the ROTC just didn't, didn't work out. So I had heard a program called Platoon Leaders Class PLT from a buddy of mine and, uh, signed up for that, quit the ROTC, signed up for the PLC program and, uh, was when I was, when I graduated from Northeast and I was commissioned a second lieutenant. And, that was the beginning of my Marine Corps career. So let me ask you, a couple, first of all, give me a couple lessons learned from being a garbage man. Ah, well, you know, uh, you never know what you're going to find. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I always put down, in fact, uh, my wife's dad said that I was the best G-man he ever had because I always closed the, the cover on the, on the uh, garbage. Uh, because we used to pick up the garbage early in the morning. Right. We kept it separated from... Uh, from the regular trash because I think the town sold it to a pig farmer or something. And so we would we would get off the truck and have a, a barrel. It didn't have plastic at that time. They had metal barrels. barrels. We'd go and empty out these underground uh, garbage containers into the barrel. And you'd get to about four houses. You could just barely walk and go out and empty it and then go again. So you're, you had to fight maggots and the smell, but, uh, you know, after that, it was just, uh, it was, the payday came, so it all made it worthwhile. The, um, and then, and, and the Marine Corps, um, the, the Marine Corps, you would have been an Army officer if, if, if the Army would have had some kind of PLC program that would have conformed or, or been better tailored to your work schedule throughout the summer. Uh, had the Marine Corps never darkened your doorstep? Yeah, no, they really hadn't, and I hadn't really thought about it. This buddy of mine who went in the Marine Corps, he was out at the uh, University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Uh, he, somehow, we, you know, we were talking about, I was telling him I was having problems with the ROTC program because of uh, my commuter status. And he said, geez, I just signed up for this PLC, and you can go uh, either one 10-week segment one summer, or you can go two six-week segments uh, and two summers. And that, that, a, was attractive to me because if I did the two sick weeks increments, I could still do my summer job. And, and the guy that owned the uh, rubbish and trash business, uh, uh, he, he guaranteed I'd have the job when I came back. So uh, it just worked out perfectly, and I didn't have to worry about upsetting my carpool or, or the members of the carpool so that uh, 
I could meet my school obligations, my commuter obligations, and at the same time, uh, I had already made the decision that I was going to go in the military for at least three or four years. And just kind of, um, that's kind of one of those, a given, I guess. I, I had already made that decision. I never thought about staying in, but I did, did talk about going for three or four years. What um, the Vietnam War is starting at about this time? Had you uh, you grew up in a in a in a in a, in a time in our country that uh, just about I'm sure everybody who taught you, all the men that taught you, all the men who coached you, and most of the men in town were veterans. Um, uh, talk about did you have any thoughts about the war at that time? Were, were you uh, you sound like a pretty busy guy in terms of. Uh, you know, becoming a teacher, get, getting your degree, supporting your family. Uh, did you have thoughts about the war? You know, I really didn't. Um, you're absolutely right. I was born in 42, so, you know, the uh, World War II was just cranking up. Uh, my dad and his four brothers all went into the military, uh, none in the Marines, but in the Army and in the Navy, and one went into the Merchant Marines. Uh, you know, so, and then I can always remember seeing the parades going down the main street in the small town of Hull after the war was over, you know, celebrating the victory. And so I was always kind of enamored or excited about um, the military and, and things military. I had a lot of post-war books that came out, that, uh, and I was an avid reader even then, you know, going through them, and a lot of the pictorial books that they came out that showed you the different things. And then, of course, there was the TV show Victory at Sea that was the main staple at that time. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I ever did not entertain thoughts of going in the, in the military. I think that was just kind of a natural plan after college was to go in the military and Obviously, by virtue of either going through the ROTC program or the PLC program, I was going to go in as a commissioned officer. Well, um, talk to us um, about the before we talk about the you and, and becoming an artillery officer and, and, and going to Vietnam. What was the Marine Corps like then? Um, you know, you had to, you know if you were in for twenty years at that point, uh, you would come into Marine Corps in nineteen forty-five or just before that. So you're a World War II guy. I'm sure there's plenty of uh, Korean War guys around uh, as well. What was the Marine Corps like then? Uh, it was funny. The PLC guys, um, the staff NCOs that uh, were the instructors and and folks that the controlling authority, I guess, for us um, and PLCs. Uh, most of them, or a lot of them, were were Korean War vets, and it was kind of funny. You know, they were just uh, they were interesting characters. I guess would be the best way to put it. When I went to basic school. Uh, we we had guys that were coming back from Vietnam, so basic school being you know that first uh, first school after commissioning where you kind of learn your profession before you go out and do marine things. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of funny. Uh, I really didn't have a great sense about Vietnam. Um, you know, I read about it in the paper. Uh, it wasn't really a hot topic in. Uh, in college, uh, of course, my, I think it was my junior or senior year, that's when Kennedy was assassinated. And, uh, of course, he was one of the five presidents who were actually involved in the Vietnam experience. So it, it, I don't think uh, the war bothered me too much uh, when I when I uh, raised my hand and took the oath of office at the gradu- after the graduation ceremony. I was the only guy in a sea of black uh, gowns. I was the only one in white. At that time, we had the white uniform, so... 
is in Boston. I think it was Boston Gardens or Boston Arena. And, uh, you know, I was the only one in, in, in a white uniform. I looked like an ice cream salesman. But uh, that was it. The um, I talked to us about uh, you wanted to be an infantry officer. Um, tell uh, what happened. Did, did you ever get, why did they let Neil be an infantry officer? You know, that was one of the big disappointments early on in, in the military, in, in, in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, I, I was, I was, you know, I, I just thought that being a Marine meant being an infantry officer. You know, it just didn't seem like other the other service specialties or other MLSs were really, they just didn't appeal to me. Um, I never even doubted that I wouldn't be an infantry officer. So I think at that time we had to make three choices. I think if I recall, I put down an infantry officer, artillery officer, and tanker. I think those were the three that I put down there. You know, some guys would kid and say, you oh, know, I'm going to be motor T and out in three. And, you know, there's, right. there's all kinds of conversations like that. But I never expected that I wouldn't be an infantry officer. And so when that list came out, I was really disappointed uh, when some, the, the SBC, uh, Captain uh, Pierpan at that time, her Pierpan, and, you know, I said, is there a way I can appeal this and stuff like that? <laughs> he said, no, I put you in for it, but, you know, needs of the Marine Corps prevail and uh, he said but I'll tell you one thing he said you know he had just come back from Vietnam he said you know the guy that was at my side all the time was my FO so you know just you know get your MOS and uh, be the best FO that the, that the Marine Corps can can, uh, can send to the fleet so I kind of took that advice and from the rest of it was history the um what was uh you said you go to Fort Sill and uh Anything uh, Anything change your life at Fort Sill? Mm, no. Um, I just, um, it was kind of funny. At that time in the Marine Corps, the only officers that didn't go to a follow-on school after the basic school for further training in their MOS was the infantry officer. And that was kind of, you know, you reflect back on that and probably right. shame on us. We now have the infantry officers course, IOC. And, of course, the infantry officers go to that before they go out to the fleet, just as the artillery officers go to Fort Sill before going out to the fleet and the motor T guys and so on and so forth. But, uh, no, Fort Sill was, was okay. Um, uh, good guys I was with, plus there was, uh, you know, it was both Army and, and Marines, and it was competitive an environment again. Um, but, you know, the war, now we knew we knew where the next duty station was, which was Vietnam. And, uh, uh, no, it kind of, it just kind of all gelled and, and things were going good. I just knew I was, I took Pear Pan's advice to heart and just made sure that I understood artillery from A to Z. And, and of course, one of the benefits of going to Fort Sill was uh, there was a lot heavy emphasis on map reading because that's really what a FO has got to do is be able to bring rounds in to support the, the ground guys. And, uh, so I was, you know, I wanted to be the best map reader. And but in those days, we didn't have GPS. We had the ones that I had compass and, and maps. And uh, I got good at it. The, you know, sir, I don't want you to think I'm a dork or anything like that because I am an actual, actually an infantry officer. But um, on Saturday this past, um, as I was reading uh, about uh, your book and, and, uh, and, and a couple other things, um, um I, I, I have 
One of the things I've learned the most about uh, since starting to do all marine radio is Vietnam. Um, Vietnam is so different depending on the year, depending on where you are in the country, that it's amazing. And uh, but I've learned I've, I've learned I've learned a ton about it uh, through through just interviewing different guys that that were there. I and and I tend to plot uh, my stuff on Google Earth. I'll pull up Google Earth and I'll put push pins in. And but I didn't have an overlay of the DMZ. And in the in the fight we're going to talk about is is in in proximity to this DMZ. And uh, and so I spent three hours plotting the DMZ on Saturday. Oh my good, yeah. I don't know. Again, I know that sounds like I'm a dork. I'm not a dork though, just for the record. Uh, but I love I love maps and uh, and uh, and I and I specifically love Google Earth now because it's like you can actually see it. It's not like you have to look at somebody's two dimensional drawing on a on the uh, on the page of a book. You know, you can fly there and actually see the terrain, which is. Which is in and of itself amazing. So anyway, just yeah. so you know, if you ever need a overlay of the DMZ for your Google Earth map, just let me know. Just let me know, and I'll send you my file. I yeah, I'll, 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 I'll get a hold of you for sure. <laughs> what? Um, so uh, you, you complete, uh, you know, Fort Sill uh, artillery officer basic course, and then you're off to Vietnam. Um, uh, talk about. Uh, about going to Vietnam, it's no matter I think uh, what conflict you ever go to, I think uh, there's a sobering moment uh, when uh, you're beginning to fly into that country, and uh, uh, you you one I think feel your own mortality, and two you feel that long shadow of the Iwo Jima flag raising extending over you. Uh, talk about uh, as you went uh, as you moved towards Vietnam, uh, what, what was that experience like for you? Yeah, well, I've, uh, once I. I uh, finished with Phil. I went out to um, uh, California at Pendleton and picked up a, um, a replacement uh, unit and uh, trained with them. Uh, in fact, it was one of the disappointments I can still remember. I was out training with them in, in the different mountainous areas out there in Las Pugas. And, and some of the O3s that were with me at Fort Sill were out there, and uh, they were falling out in the run. And, you know, and here I am, the guy that wanted to be an O3, and I'm kind of leading the pack, and I'm wondering what the hell went wrong. Be that as May, uh, I took the Transplacement Battalion over to Vietnam, and, of course, they were, as soon as they landed, they were taken and, and sorted out and sent to different organizations throughout the Marine Corps that was uh, up. We landed in Da Nang. We stopped in Okinawa for... I guess about three or four days, and then went on into uh, landing in Da Nang. As I got off the plane, the heat was amazing. I'm wondering what the hell am I doing here? I wasn't thinking of mortality. I was just thinking of the now. You know, it was hot and it was humid. And um, I was. They put me in a, uh, a you know cabin or whatever I want to call it. I can't remember what the name was, but anyways, I went there and then. That night, this young lieutenant came running in calling for me, and a recon outfit had gotten in trouble, and they wanted to send a artillery FO into a system and bring in fire. And they called it a sparrowhawk, and I didn't, you know, I, said, I had to sit him down and say, what's a sparrowhawk? That's the first thing. And he said, well, this is, it's a quick reaction force, and we need someone, we need an FO to go in uh, with the group that's going in. So he outfitted me with a pistol and flak jacket and a helmet, and uh, the pucker factor at that time kicked into uh, high gear. And uh, 
uh, just when we were about to go out to get aboard the helicopter to join the infantry outfit that was going in as part of the Sparrowhawk, uh, the, the recon guys uh, broke contact. There was no need to launch the Sparrowhawk, so I probably lost about 10 pounds in that <laughs> one 50-minute equation. That was my introduction to Vietnam, Vietnam the first, first, either the first night or the second night. And then subsequent to that, I was assigned to Fox 212 artillery battery down in Anwa. Uh, went down there and joined them, and then as was the, uh, the uh, procedure, they, an FO, when he reported in, initially would be assigned to an infantry company and then later on would come back to the battery to finish out his tour. So I was sent down to uh, Lima Company, uh, 3-9, and then uh, later on joined, uh, well, I came back to the battery, wasn't really happy with the battery situation, didn't feel like I was involved in the fight, and was able to get uh, sent down to India Company 3-9, and that's where I finished out my first year tour. The um, so, so your first assignment was Anwa. That's what that's along the coast, uh, along the coast or, or near the coast, uh, south of July. No, it's it's south of Da Nang. Uh, I never saw a coast. It was in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't remember seeing the coast. You know, it was down. It was south of Da Nang. You went right down. I think it was Route Five, if I remember right. Okay. And uh, uh, no, it was it was quite a distance from Da Nang, and um, uh, it was in the mountainous area. Well, the mountains were all around us. We were like in a valley, and then uh, we did, we operated there, and then subsequently they moved us up to the Da Nang area, and uh, we actually got aboard ship, and they sent us back to um, Okinawa ostensibly to uh, re, uh, get some new recruits into the battalion. The whole battalion went back, and, and the battery as well as supported it, to get new troops and also to um, get introduced to the M-16. We, at that time, were carrying the M-14. They didn't issue the M-16 at that time, but we got it later on uh, Later on, on the tour. What, so the first part of your, your, your deployment... Um, give us give us the, the the major learning curves for you uh, as a second lieutenant. Both 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 give me give us a couple skill things that that you learned, and then a couple leadership things you learn here uh, working with Fox Two Twelve. Yeah, well, I was with Fox Two Twelve. That's the artillery battery, of right. course, and uh, basically. Uh, I wasn't the fire direction officer. They already had an officer that was senior to me as a fire direction officer, and I was just, I had a platoon, so I had two two guns, uh, 105 howitzers at that particular time. And I was responsible for making sure that they maintained the weapon system, that the troops were attentive and well-trained uh, as a gun crew so that they could fire in support of the infantry. Shortly thereafter, I was assigned to, um, as I said, Lima, uh, company, uh, 3rd Battalion, 9th Marines, uh, Captain Charlie Pyle was the, um, was the, the commanding officer for the company, and I was his FO. Um, I think the thing I learned, or the thing that, um, most importantly is when you join a new outfit, and particularly as an attachment, in other words, I wasn't part of it, I was attached to it as a, as the FO, is kind of just kind of sit and watch and kind of learn from those other officers, the platoon commanders, the company commander. I just uh, I learn by watching, and 
I knew I made myself learn all the different weapon systems in that platoon and within the company, so that if I ever had to, uh, you know, operate those particular weapon systems, maybe not in my job description as an FO, at least I would, I would know how to do it. And you never know, you might have to take over a company or a platoon, you know, you never know what you're going to be doing. So I learned by doing. Um, Pyle was a good um, map reader. I thought I was better, and we used to have some pretty good discussions <laughs> as to where we were. <laughs> no, no easy chore. I can tell you, I, I fired some smoke rounds, and uh, I'd have to turn around to see where it landed when I looked out where it was in front of me. So, uh, you know, live and learn, and uh, uh, and practice makes better. So it was, it was a good learning experience. Uh, he got malaria. I got rotated back to the um, to the battery. Again, I wasn't really happy with it, and subsequently I, I convinced the battery commander they needed a fill for uh, an FO in uh, India Company, and I was able to get that job. Hey, sir, w- w- before we leave Lima 39, um, uh, in that in uh, Anwa, who were you um, predominantly uh, fighting uh, NVA, Viet Cong? Um, and, and what kind of contact did did you, did you have uh, throughout that first tour as an FO? Yeah, um, no, not MVA, not that far south. We were fighting uh, Viet Cong, um, and it was um, a lot of a lot of um, you know movement to contact. Uh, you weren't expecting big contact. It was kind of hit and run. Um, Every now and then you might run into two or three of them at you know, Viet Cong, but most of the time it was, you know, uh, snipers and going through villages looking for weapons caches and stuff of that nature. But it was um, it was the Viet Cong. It was it was uh, tedious work. It was dangerous work. Um, um, but we, we we patrolled all the time. Uh, Pyle was a stickler for being out and about. Uh, there weren't any really big operations that I would say that we were involved in. Most of them were company level and below. Um, battalion, I can't even remember if we did any battalion as a lieutenant. You know, you kind of you're you're divorced from that because you you're living the up close and personal so you're not really here at the tactical level it's not too much involved with the operational level of war right yeah, um, so you go to um you go back um and, and you get hooked up with uh with india 39 talk about the genesis of that is the genesis of that uh um now i knew this i didn't tell you when we were talking before but but I know that you're I don't want to say a bit of a social butterfly because that has the wrong connotation but but uh, you're you're uh, you're how, what's a, what would be an appropriate word uh, you're gregarious you're not afraid of a good time um, is 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 the initial basis for your relationship with the with the officers in three nine uh, social how do you meet those guys and and ultimately wind up getting assigned there. Yeah, well, I actually yeah, probably guilty as charged. I uh, uh, I initially uh, met uh, a guy named John Prickett. He was a lieutenant. Um, he was with India Company, but he came over to the battery uh, before we redeployed to uh, Okinawa, and uh, he was looking for uh, our XO. Had they had both gone to University of Georgia, and so um, I got to meet him. I really liked him. Uh, you know, I could see he's. He's uh, a, a great Marine, but also, you know, uh, kind of the same temperament as I had, you know, uh, 
uh, ready to go out and have fun. And so, uh, next thing I know, we were in, uh, we were in, uh, Okinawa getting that 30 days, uh, rearm, refurbish, et cetera. And, um, uh, I got to go out with John and a group of officers that made up, uh, India company. And I could tell right away there was a good chemistry there. They were real professional, but they also liked to have a good time. And so, that's what caused me to go see my battery commander and say, hey, is there a chance I could get get with India? And, and that's basically what led to uh, me being assigned to India uh, 3-9 and, uh, and as we redeployed back into Vietnam. And this time we redeployed up north, so we were, we were up uh, near Camp Carroll and up near the DMZ. Talk to us about... Um Tell me about the com- tell me about the company commander. Uh, there's a part uh, in your book uh, where you where I, the first time I read the, the name John Bobo. I think for anybody who's an infantry officer, uh, anybody who's a Marine Corps officer, uh, that name stands out. Um, and you knew him you knew him as a friend, as a as also as a colleague. Uh, talk to us about um, about your company commander. Uh, how do you, do you say his name? Is Gittins? How do you say his name? Uh, Getlin, Getlin, yeah, Mike Getlin, yeah. Mike was uh, he had he had uh, just picked up captain, and uh, I think he was with the 26 Marines, but he made captain, and somehow he ended up down with um, uh, with Third uh, Battalion, Ninth Marines, and ultimately as the company commander for uh, for the battalion uh, for the company, India Company. Uh, the weapons platoon commander was uh, was John Bobo, and. Uh, we had uh, John Prickett was uh, he had first platoon and Ray Gall who was a Mustang he had uh, third platoon and second platoon was uh, a, a brand new lieutenant Dan Pulse so they were all great guys um, we got to know each other and you know the spirit of camaraderie and brotherhood I think uh, blossomed in Okinawa but then it really came into fruition when we got into Camp Carroll and started to operate as a company. We were involved in a um, a lot of patrolling, did a lot of things together. And, you know, I, I watched this new set of uh, leaders, uh, Ketlin on down, uh, had confidence in them, and uh, was really happy that the, that I had made the switch over from the battery to now again out with the infantry. And then, um, well, basically, the next thing I guess would be talking about thirty thirty one March. Well, you know, well, you know, so I, so I never. Um, as I said, my ongoing uh, in uh, uh, education about Vietnam, I'd never heard of Prairie Operation Prairie one and two, let alone three or four. Um, and uh, and so I saw those names, and so I, I, I went back and I started doing some reading. And for those of you that have never read about you know the northern portion of I Corps. Um, I will tell you that, that you would do yourself a favor if you would take your Google Earth map out, and I'll send you all my I'll send you all my overlays. But um, tell you what, it's a it's a man's fight up there. Uh, not yeah. o- not only the terrain, the weather, but there was an enemy there that would close with you, that would hammer you with with supporting arms, uh, was good at his field craft, and and would close with you. And uh, you know, again, we haven't faced an enemy like that. Uh, you know, I don't know that, that, that your enemy in Desert Storm, 
uh, as I watched from afar here, uh, actually teaching at IOC uh, during that one. And, uh, you know, certainly not in the march up, somebody that would close with you or in the intervening years, uh, probably our experience was more, very similar to your experience with the VC, onesies and twosies, shoot and scoot, you know, IDs, uh, you know, much like you, you all face in terms of booby traps and things like that, but uh, only ambush you when he had you in a position of extreme inferiority and then maybe would mass and ball up when he knew it was a sure deal. But the northern part of i was was very very different. The operation I, I want to say Prairie One, twelve almost thirteen hundred North Vietnamese soldiers killed in that in that operation, and I want to say about two hundred and forty nine Marines killed in that operation. So you see those kind of numbers, and you know it's your, your holy shit moment. Holy shit, man, uh, that's serious stuff. And there was a time on target fired at. Um, how do you say? Is it is it Jiao Lin? G I O L I N N sir? How do you say that? Oh, yeah. A time on target in, in, in the space of, I want to say, seven minutes, they took 400 rounds that the NBA shot at them. And you're like... Yeah, it was a level, it was a level playing field uh, fighting with them. Uh, the, the, the edge we had was air. But uh, let me tell you, they were well-trained. They were well-equipped. Um, their leaders knew how to fight. They had been fighting a long time. Um, and they weren't afraid to commit forces, uh, and they would take advantage, uh, you know, they knew that if they were close to us, uh, the advantage of the air was, was mitigated because, uh, you know, the fear of friendly fire. So, well, these guys were good, as I, as I told you, or as I wrote in the book, right. you know, when we came around the corner and John got hit, and, uh, uh, I mean, the guy that hit him was, was, he had a, a thirty caliber machine gun on wheels. I mean, uh, wow. these guys were these guys were good, and and they knew their tactics. And uh, uh, to those that didn't uh, pay attention to the enemy, uh, they did it at their own peril. Sir, let me. I also want to ask you about. You know, we see references to, and I see pictures of the, of the terrain. Um, so, so in 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 the action that we're going to talk about on March thirty thirty one of nineteen sixty seven. You're operating out of Camp, Camp Carroll. That's correct. Yeah. All right. And and in the general vicinity of the of the fight is where. Uh, uh Cam Low and Contian area. Okay. Right in that general vicinity, it was a battalion level operation, and uh, obviously it was orchestrated uh, from the from the battalion headquarters. Um, they were in the field as well, although some uh, a preponderance of their headquarters element was still on Camp Carroll. Got it. The, um, talk to us about uh, the pictures I see are of things like elephant grass. What What's the terrain like up there? Because um, quite honestly, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I was pretty, until a few months ago, pretty ignorant of the fighting that went on about Con, around Contian. And I was mm-hmm. talking about another holy shit moment. Um, you know, the, wow. What was it? What was the terrain like? Um, yeah, the terrain was tough. Um, uh, not only, as you mentioned, the the elephant grass, but um, the jungle itself closed in. And, you know, there were times when we had to machete ourselves, way, you know, through areas to just keep moving forward. So, obviously, there was stealth was out of the question. So, yeah, it was really tough. It was hot. It was humid. And the ele- if you got in the elephant grass, which uh, the preponderance of the area we operated in was that, uh, 
there was not a breath of fresh air, and uh, there was leeches. Uh, I never really did see too many snakes, but leeches were terrible all over the place, and uh, and you were you were wet from perspiration. Uh, you were wet from crossing streams. Uh, you were always drinking water as much as you could carry or as much as you could borrow because uh, dehydration was a big problem, as was sunstroke. So you had to. You had to be upfront and personal with the young Marines to keep them moving because I'll tell you, it was just difficult terrain uh, and difficult environment to operate in. Could you explain what elephant grass is to us? Uh, I guess the way I would aim it, uh, if you've ever been, on the, been to the seashore and see the grass they put on dunes to try and hold them, only these grew up to sometimes, well, over a man's height, and particularly man, I'm a short guy, so I mean, you couldn't uh, you couldn't see. In other words, it was almost like walking in a tunnel because uh, the grass was higher than you were. So you couldn't see if the enemy just lay, if he just uh, set up a position in the elephant grass, you could walk right by him without never seeing him. And then and then how would you uh, talk to me about logistics for a second? Um, how were you guys resupplied uh, in terms of did they? Did, did they resupply you by ground? Did they resupply you by air? And then what did you do for water when it was that hot? And there was no camelback back then. All right, you had your, how, no, many, how many no. canteens would you carry? Just the normal two? You carry four or five, four or five canteens, and you had the magazines, of course. So yeah. you had the magazines, you had the four or five canteens. Uh, most were resupplied. It depended on the duration of the of the. Uh, uh, operation, if you were just out for, let's say, two or three days, basically, you ate what was on your back. The meal ready to eat. Basically, you filled your, your backpack with them and carried them with you. And uh, then every third day, they would uh, try to make a helo insert where they would uh, drop off uh, food and water and we'd resupply there. Most of the water, there was enough streams around there, but you never knew what you were drinking, but there were enough streams around there that every time you crossed the water, you always made sure you filled up your canteens. And then you had to um, instill discipline with the young Marines, make sure that they, you know, that they conserve water, even though you told them to drink as much water so that they wouldn't be dehydrated. sounds kind of (laughs) counterintuitive, but you had to kind of do both, conserve while at the same time make sure you drink. But, uh, yeah, it was tough going what, um, you, could lose, you could probably lose four or five pounds just in one day, just because of the heat. And 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 so and when you would take water out of the stream, uh, did you guys have water purifiers, or did you just uh, yeah? We had halazone tablets. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure how good they were. <laughs> That's what we had. We didn't have purifiers with us. We just uh, had these uh, packets of pills that we would drop a couple into the into the thing, shake it up, and it supposedly it killed whatever was in there. So now, now, you you personally, physically, the um, you're a runner, and and uh, and you 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 subsequent to this, you run uh, you you you'll run marathons. Um, how how did how did the environment affect you physically? Um, I guess I I guess you know I guess I was motivated more just. Because, you know, you were an officer, even though I was the FO, you were an officer in a leadership position. I think you just kind of, you know, you couldn't grumble and blame it on day and stuff like that. You just kind of had to push through. And uh, because you were the, I don't think the, the 
term role model is is apropos, but it's it's close to it. You know that the troops look at you, and so um, you know if you're making it, and you're usually four or five years older than they were. Uh, if you're doing it, then um, most of the most of the troops do it. Your staff NCOs, some of them were not in good shape, and then they got in shape. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a challenge. Um, the running aspect. Um, it didn't apply, really. I guess you really had to just put one foot in front of the other. I think the biggest thing was trying to keep the attention span up because it, it was easy to just put your head and kind of go into a, a elephant type, you know, just follow the guy in front of you. And and because it was so hot and because it was uh, the elephant grass was so high, uh, you really didn't get to see too much around you. So there was nothing much to keep your attention level going, and you were. If you're an introvert, it was probably a perfect environment. My guest uh, today on a uh, another edition of uh, Battlefield Study is uh, is retired Marine Corps General Butch Neal, and uh, we're talking about uh, uh, his time in Vietnam, 1966-1967. Uh, right now, we're talking about his time uh, with India Company, Third uh, Battalion, Ninth Marines. In, uh, during Operation Prairie 3. So talk to us about fire support, how uh, uh, your job as CFO. Are you a first lieutenant at this time, or are you still a second lieutenant? And what about, uh, and, and in terms of fire support, what's at your disposal? Yeah, I was a second lieutenant. I uh, had um, at my disposal, the, the, the battery that I had was um, a composite battery. It had six one, 105s and uh, two 155 um, uh, howitzers. And then uh, we had access in Jiolin and also in Camp Carroll. They had uh, 175 shooters, and I think they had 8 inch as well. Wow. So as far as fire support, uh, we had ample uh, resources to tap into if, uh, if in fact, we got into a fight or if we used it for H&Is harassing and interdicting fires at night. So uh, from a from a artillery point of view, we were pretty well stocked as to... Uh, availability of resources when and if we needed them. All right. Uh, talk to us about uh, Operation Prairie 3. You guys uh, you guys are, are out. Uh, what's your mission? Uh, what are you supposed to be doing? Well, it was really kind of a coordinate sweep. We were, um, we kind of had a, a spot on a map where they wanted us to kind of end up for the night. Uh, and, and basically uh, the the orders were that we would set up uh, three platoon-sized ambushes at different locations. Um, the captain, Captain Mike Gatlin, was. We had seen indications as we were moving through uh, the heavy and dense foliage. We we had seen indications of recent enemy activity, footprints, uh, discarded material, and, and I'm saying you know really. Uh, New stuff, not not old stuff. This was a new new indication that the enemy was in the area. You could actually you could actually smell uh, the the NVA. There was just a distinct odor that you could smell and pick up. I don't know if it was the food or what what it was, but you kind of knew they were in the area. Uh, Captain Gatlin went back to the battalion and said, "Hey, you know, there's a lot of enemy out here. Uh, I suggest that we not." Uh, break the company up into three platoons, but in fact we established a couple close uh, platoon-slash-company uh, defensive positions, ambush positions, and and 
we wait until daylight and then we move out again. And the continuation of the search and destroy. Now that was denied. He basically very forcefully argued against it, but was told to carry out his orders, which you know, we did uh, form up three platoon ambush sites uh, that he pinpointed on the map. We almost, uh, we suggested, uh, John Prickett actually, one of the platoon commanders said, why don't we just sandbag it and not go to those positions? And he said, you know, I've been thinking about that. Kathleen did, but I'm just, uh, I don't like to disobey order one and then number two. I don't like having, having say, uh, telling battalion you're one place when in fact you're not there. I should some flyers go in there, we could get people hurt inadvertently through friendly fire. So, we carried out the mission, uh, he said, because 1st platoon was going to be the furthest one out. That was John Prickett's platoon. He decided to put me with him in case uh, he figured if anyone got into trouble, it would be uh, Prickett's platoon. So I I was out with the 1st platoon. 2nd uh, platoon was split up. Half of, about half of it was to stay with the company headquarters, who was located on a small hill called 70. And then uh, third platoon was to stay where they were, and they were going to put up their ambush site there. So that's kind of how it all shaped out. He broke up. Uh, he had weapons platoon assign different weapon systems to John's platoon and to the other platoons, the reinforced platoons. And uh, so we moved out uh, to get into our ambush position before uh, before dusk, and that's when. Uh, shit hit the fan. So, so, um, so, did you have assigned targets, fire support targets already worked up, or would it be simply you adjust and fire off contact uh, that was that, that was made at any given point? Yeah, we. Um, I did some map spotting where the supposed um, uh, ambush position was going to be. We never really got there. Uh, I didn't really worry too much about it. I, I I knew I could adjust fire from just about anywhere. That wouldn't be a problem. And and I had pretty good map location as to where we were and where we were going. So I wasn't too concerned about that. I was a little concerned because of breaking up the uh, the company. And of course, there's only one FO. So uh, you know, if third platoon got in trouble, it could it could cause them some problems. But uh, fortunately, that didn't uh, that didn't come into play and what happened as we got there. All right. The, um, so w- w- what is the first indication um, of enemy contacts, or what uh, is it? Is it the mortars that they started dropping? Yeah, we could, you know, all of a sudden we were moving out, and uh, we were probably, I don't know, 500 meters away from the, from the uh, uh, headquarters company or from the company. CP and um, we could. I heard mortars drop in. We stopped the platoon. John did stop the platoon. Called back and uh, talked to Captain Gatlin and said, "Hey, Skipper, you know, you want us to turn around and come back?" He says, "No, it's. I think it's just a couple, you know, harassing rounds." And uh, then the next thing we heard was more mortars, and then we heard AK-47. So uh, next thing I heard was. Uh, Gatlin was on the phone to me. He said, Butch, you know, uh, give me all the fire support you can. He gave me the grids. And I, I remember saying, that's your position. <laughs> he says, yeah, they're in the position. So I started, I called in the fire support, and then John and I, we turned the platoon around and went back 
headed towards uh, where the, the CP group was located. And uh, we came around the corner, and uh, the enemy had already gotten himself in between our route and CP, and so we we ran into a real sandwich there, got into heavy heavy combat. Uh, John, the platoon commander, was a few steps ahead of me. He was he was hit seriously, and then uh, um, I had to take over the platoon at that particular time. And once we that machine gun I talked about, that 30 caliber on wheels, I could see it. And I, my first order was uh, rocket team up. And these two guys came scrambling, and two Marines came scrambling out of somewhere and did a 3.5-inch rocket launcher. And I pointed to where they had to do one shot. The machine gun went up in the air, and from there we just went into a counterattack mode and wiped out the enemy there and then uh, fought our way towards the command group. So talk talk about um, at what point does it dawn on you that you are now the platoon commander? Well, I was <laughs> initially maybe I was in denial. I, I've got John laying in front of me. He's got a shot through the hip uh, in serious pain. I'm yelling for a corpsman while I'm trying to get that rocket team going. Uh, you know, the noise uh, is un- unreal. And... Uh, uh, I finally get uh, a corpsman up there. I'm, I'm trying to staunch the bleeding, and I, I kind of look up, and I see a lot of Marines looking at me, and, and I realize that uh, if my book title is my whatnot lieutenant moment had arrived. Uh, you know, you got you got the wand because John was seriously wounded, but that wasn't my job at the moment. So uh, I took over the platoon, but I didn't take it over. I just basically started giving orders. The rocket team up was the first order, and then after that, John had trained his squad leaders really well, and his fire team went really well. So it was a matter of just pointing out where I wanted them to move and, and giving orders out, and guys responded, as Marines always do, and uh, overran the enemy quite quickly. And then uh, we continued to moved towards the command group where we were headed originally and uh, by the time we got there Captain Gatlin had already been killed uh, found him and then John Bobo you could tell where he was standing he had already been he had been mortally wounded as well And uh, but we drove the enemy off the hill and then I the sack had been killed so I became the Ford Air Controller and started using uh, the gunships to a great effect against the retreating enemy. These guys were all NBA, you know. Right. Fifth helmets, the whole shooting match. These guys were good. And uh, they actually had captured two of the radio operators uh, from the fact team. And fortunately, we were able to, they dropped the guys they were taking as prisoners when we made a gun run on them. So the uh, air really played a big, a big portion of the fight. And you were able to get them back. Um, yeah, you yeah. were able to get them back, and so That's so. At what point do you take over the company? Now you know, I don't know if I could ever really pinpoint it. I just it was just uh, what the remnants of, uh, I should say, the real fighting ability of the first platoon, the one that I had taken over from John. And then I realized that Captain Gatlin was killed. Uh, the first sergeant, who usually doesn't go out with us, he was he was trying to run air, and he just, you know, I just said, uh, you know, hey, Top Rogers, I got it. Uh, so basically, I took over the fact, and then 
I just realized that, you know, I was probably the senior guy there. Uh, at least I was the one in the fight because the third platoon really wasn't in it too bad. And the second platoon, Dan Pulse, was brand new. So he kind of, he was kind of following my lead. So I guess it was just a, a natural migration from Ford, Ford observer to corpsmen to riflemen to platoon commanders to, uh, to ultimately a company commander and then fact. So it kind of had uh, six or seven different hats on there at any one time. Somebody. Although you didn't, you didn't kind of separate them out. They just kind of all, they, they just kind of were all joined at the hip. Sir, is our is third platoon and weapons back with you, or, or are they still separate from you at this time? No, I had I had portions of weapons with me that were on the hill, Um those those guys uh, that were on the hill uh, at Hill 70, where the headquarters thing, they had that's the covering fire that uh, Lieutenant Bobo provided for them, so that they could move to a secondary position. Uh, and there was some second um, platoon Marines that were with them as well. They were either wounded or they had moved back to the second position while I was while we were closing in on Hill 70 ourselves. And so there was a kind of a a melding of the two company of two platoons of, of what was the remnants of second platoon, and of course my uh, my first platoon guys and third platoon was separated enough. I just told him to stay in place because I was afraid of friendly fire, and I didn't need him at that particular time because I had already cleared uh, Hill 70 of the bad guys, and now it was more of a uh, uh, pursuit by fire using the artillery and and the uh, and the air uh, while we're consolidating our position and then trying to find out our killed and our wounded. Got it. The, um, if you don't mind, I mean, we've all heard, um, I'd be curious to hear your, your version of, of, of Lieutenant Bobo's uh, actions. Um, uh, I think most of us have, uh, that will listen to this that are officers have, uh, have stood outside of his chow hall. Uh, some of us have, have, have worked, uh, with the MPF ship uh, in that bears his name, but uh, I, I think that uh, it's one of the humbling experiences in life when you're, you I, I can remember standing outside his chow hall, reading uh, reading uh, what was on the plaque, and thinking, "Holy shit!" You know that yeah. that guy that guy you know wasn't here that long ago. I went through I went through OCS in 1983. He wasn't here that long ago, and look at that. Um, can you talk about what he did that day? Yeah, it was, John was a, was a wonderful uh, guy. Uh, he, Frickett and I were, the, were sort of hellraisers, and John was, I always said to him, I said, you should have been a priest. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> he went to a Catholic, uh, with Niagara University, uh, which is a Catholic school. Wonderful guy, just a uh, great sense of humor, um, uh, just kind of salt of the earth, someone that you could depend on. And, of course, uh, it, it came through in spades during this time. But essentially what happened um, as they over were overrunning the command group, uh, the enemy soldiers, John's uh, bottom portion of his leg was blown off just below the knee. And uh, the common put a tourniquet on it, and they were getting ready to medevac him back to alternate positions. And he said no. I got to get the troops back there. I'll provide covering fire, and then, then we can move back. And uh, basically, he 
he took the stump of his leg and stuck it into the ground. That's, about, that's how I found him. Stuck it in the ground to stop the bleeding, and then uh, he provided covering fire for his uh, weapons platoon guys and portions of the second uh, platoon to uh, to move back to alternate uh, defensive positions. Uh, and uh, in doing that, basically, yes, you know, exposed himself to enemy fire and held him off until he was overwhelmed. Uh, but um, you know. There's not much you can say beyond that, except that uh, he probably saved uh, an awful bunch, uh, an awful lot of young Marines from certain death because at that particular time uh, they were in uh, an extremist position as far as the enemy closing in on them. But his actions basically prevented that from occurring. Um, your company commander's uh, the recipient of the Navy Cross, as are three other Marines in that company. I don't. This is just me uh, in, in my own cursory search. I don't know that I've ever, I've ever heard of that, um, a Medal of Honor, and and is it three or four Navy Crosses are awarded in one yeah, company? Yeah, we had, we had the, the corpsman, Doc Braun, got it, but he didn't get it until 35 years later. I actually pinned it on him after I retired. We had the the ball rolling to get headquarters Marine Corps to, to get that going. Uh, Mike Gatlin, the captain, got it. Uh, basically, he carried a shotgun uh, as a company commander, and uh, it was through his actions as he as he told the uh, command group to move to alternate positions. He basically stationed himself in a position where he provided co- uh, covering fire for them to move to the rear until he was over overcome by the enemy. Uh, Top Rogers, I mentioned him earlier, normally didn't go out with us. He stayed in the rear to take care of the troops that weren't on on uh, on the operation, but uh, he wanted to be out with us. So thankfully, he was there. Basically, he uh, he took over some of the um, fact uh, responsibilities um, around the command group until I told him I had it, and uh, and uh, he. he he basically fired up all the young Marines to to, to fight to the rear <laughs> uh, and move to alternate positions. Um, I talked about Top Braun. Basically, he was all over the field uh, treating uh, the wounded uh, and firing his weapon system until he was shot three times. Uh, and basically, he saved a number of lives. And then the last guy was Jack Laurinaitis, the um, Lance Corporal kid out of Pennsylvania, <laughs> unbelievable kid. Uh, he'd already won the Silver Star uh, three or four months before, took over an Antos and prevented an enemy uh, taking over uh, a position that uh, it looked like they were overrun for that. He got the Silver Star. And this time around, he he moved to the 60 Mortars, uh, took, took command of the 60 Mortar uh, folks and uh, used them to hold back the enemy until they ran out of ammunition. Then he basically armed himself with a M14 and held off the enemy again until the mortar folks were able to get to a, a safer position before he was killed. So yeah, there was four uh, Navy crosses and one uh, one Medal uh, uh, of Honor. Uh, it was touch and go for a while. The um, so the aftermath. Um, I, I I think until you you you're involved in in in. And, and you faced it um, as a second lieutenant, but uh, the aftermath of, of, of all of this. Uh, so you you beat back that attack, 
as you said, touch and go. Um, and uh, and then what? You have what is it? Fifteen killed, forty-seven wounded. Um, um, I'm, I'm sure some of the wounded are wounded, are are, are their lives are hanging in the balance. Uh, and so, what time of day is it? Uh, what do you what are you going to do with the the wounded, and how do you navigate all that? Yeah, that was that was some of the toughest time because uh, obviously the battle, in a sense, was over. Uh, the enemy was fleeing, and air was taking care of them. Now we had to try and figure out, uh, you know, get reorganized, and uh, um, it was dark. Obviously, uh, this whole thing began just before dusk, and so it was dark. Uh, uh, we sent out a couple of teams to locate wounded and dead, and uh, thank God we did. Uh, they came back with the wounded that probably would have died if they had stayed out in, in their position overnight. We got the wounded up there, and uh, then we basically did a triage to figure out who were the most serious. Obviously, that was not within my purview. Had had uh, Corman doing that, and uh, we we figured we singled out 15 that probably would not make it through the night if we didn't get them out. So uh, I, I got uh, we called in a medevac bird as uh, page 34, I think if I remember right the number, and. Uh, uh, we guided him in, uh, got him in, and uh, I asked the pilot how many he could take, and he said, well, nine or ten, I guess they don't have weapons or anything. I said, no, they're clean. And so uh, we put all 15 on this one helicopter, and uh, I held my collective breath as the, the guy churned it up, and uh, he bounced a couple times, but he got up in the air, and the uh, uh, postscript was that all 15 of them uh, made it. So it was... Uh, that was good. And then, as you said, we had 47 that were wounded and 15 that were KIA. And then uh, the ones that we didn't medevac, those uh, the, 15, the, the ones remaining uh, that we didn't medevac, uh, basically were able to get out the next day. They weren't they weren't of such a nature that we were going to lose them if we if we didn't get them out. Got it. The um so so um, throughout the rest of the evening, uh, any more contact? Uh, that night, no. Um, I, I had, uh, Dan Pulse was the other platoon commander that was with me. Uh, I had him, uh, get a hold of the, re- the surviving leadership and bring him, uh, we got into a, you know, into a boxhole type configuration and, uh, you know, I just kind of had, I had, kind of had to keep an eye on them. You know, they were, they were all, as you can well imagine, everyone had lost friends and, um, uh, so it was this, was this their, was there excuse me but is this their first real punch in the face in in terms of the first time that that on this scale that I mean obviously you know given the given the awards for valor that were, that were given out and the number of KIA had they been in anything in a fight like anything close to this before this no no not of that scale uh, and intensity. Uh, this was probably the first for all of us. I mean, I'd been in firefights, but um, most of us, when we came up, as I told you previously, NBA was kind of hit and run type things. Not a, not NBA, but uh, uh, Viet Cong, and it was kind of hit and run. You know, snipers. It was frustrating, but it wasn't uh, in your face type fight. This is the first time we had really got into face to face with a professional. War fighting uh, warrior, if you want the word. 
So there were some shook-up troops. There was some shook-up leadership. And so I got all the leadership that was remaining or those that I had now starting to designate as leaders. And it's a term I've used ever since. His eyeball-level leadership is looking them in the eye and say, okay, guys, you got to get back to your men. And you gotta, <clears throat> you're got to do it in such a means that uh, they understand that you're real satisfied with their performance, but they also are Marines. they got to start taking inventory. they got to clean their weapons. And they got to be ready in case there's a reattack or a counterattack. And so, you know, yeah, it was a... That kind of that kind of got them all fired up again, and and uh, basically the night was quiet. Next morning we collected uh, intel on enemy dead and uh, wounded and equipment, and 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 uh, we were we were motored out of there probably about uh, three or four hours later. So what did so when and and you walking around and and I mean if people I, I don't know, I think it's hard for people to to imagine but you have you still have the the dead Marines with you right correct that's correct you still have your your dead friends are are inside body bags if you're lucky ponchos most likely uh, you're going around and you're gathering uh, your weapons and gear and then the enemy's weapons and gear. Did you, when you're looking at their weapons and gear, sir, what did you conclude about them? Uh, I guess the thing I concluded, but I, I kind of knew it from, you know, being in the fight, so to speak, uh, you know, and they being in uniform. We really hadn't run into guys in uniforms before. You know, I mean, they might have black uh, trousers and stuff, but these guys were, you know, they had helmets, they had... Uh, you know, they they had good uniforms, they had good weapon systems, they had supporting arms, albeit mortars and, and machine guns. But they, they, this was a professional outfit. Mm -hmm. And so when I looked around, you know, you look at, we were trying to do site exploitation, you know, to get as much intel as we could to share with uh, the intel guys when we got back to the rear. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this was the first time that we had, as a, as a company, I can't speak for the battalion. You know, I was only a lowly lieutenant, but as a company, it was the first time we had really run into a sophisticated, well-trained enemy. We, uh, talk to us uh, about the so the rest of the day you police uh, you police everything up. Um, I, I, I'm I want to ask you one more question about the eyeball the eyeball leadership because uh, I have a son who's uh, one's one's teaching at the basic school right now. Um, and the another one's the, the XO of uh, Kilo Company 3.5. And he and I were talking about this. I, I brought this term up to him last night, eyeball to eyeball leadership. When, when you talk to leaders about what that is and what that means, uh, what do you try to convey to them in terms of what eyeball leadership is? I, I, you know, I, to me, it, it, it's a visible presence. It's... it's um, you know, they watch you all the time, the young junior Marines. You know, an officer, you know, you're under a microscope whether you know it or not. And uh, they know if, you, if you're if you competent. They know if you're concerned about them. They know if you're a professional. And so eyeball-level leadership means, you know, you're an engaged leader. You, you, you make yourself a visible presence, whether it's in the barracks, whether it's out in the field, whether it's in the motor pool, whether it's in the armory. It doesn't matter. Because you're the role model, you're the you're the guy or gal that sets the standard and, and represents the standard. I guess you're also their educator and you're also their mentor. 
So, you know, it's very easy nowadays, given technology being what it is, to get yourself uh, computer-focused and staying in your office and thinking that you're a good commander because you know all the data associated with your particular outfit. But the real leader is the guy that gets out from behind that desk, gets out from behind that that computer, and gets down in, the, in those different workspaces on a routine basis, whether it's the mess hall at 0500, or 1700 when they're or at the, at the end of a field exercise you form a school, school circle and and you commend them and you critique them and you make them feel good about that, that you're interested in their learning experience and then the other thing I always see as a eyeball level leadership is you should know every weapon systems you have in that platoon or that company or even that battalion because you don't know you, you might be an fo today but you might well be a platoon commander tomorrow or you may well be a corpsman the next day or you may well be just a, a, a rifleman which we all are so there's no such thing as oh that's not my job or i don't do windows that doesn't work anymore it shouldn't have worked in 1966-67 but uh, you know we've learned from that but sometimes uh, lessons learned uh, are soon forgotten the um the next step is uh is going back and and obviously uh and boxing up people's personal effects and 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 as your company does that you're summoned uh you're summoned to Dong Ha where the third marine division forward cp is yes yeah i think that's where it was as a lieutenant on its kid i i i honestly i don't know where i went but they flew me there so it had, it wasn't it wasn't uh, camp Carroll, that's for sure all right. And what, so, what, what was the purpose of that? Obviously, this was uh, again they had been fighting these these big, these larger battles um, uh, for a while for for the past what sixty uh, the past sixty days, and now you guys yeah. are part of it. What were they interested uh, in that in in, the, in in flying you back for? I think they really wanted to uh, talk to someone that has that had uh, eyes on the battle that was there, and um, obviously. It was pretty significant battle when you lost a company commander, when you lost uh, the Ford Air Controller, when you lost uh, uh, a couple of platoon commanders to wounds. You know, uh, it, it, it was significant enough with the uh, 15 KIA and 47 WIA that uh, they wanted to kind of, uh, what can we learn from this? Um, I think there was a lot of, you know, I was, I was only a lieutenant, so, you know, a lot of this is speculation on my part. I'm sure there was a lot of, was there was there uh, malfeasance or poor leadership that might have led to this? Well, initially when I talked uh, to the staff and, and the CG, I think he was a two-star at that time, whoever he was, I can't remember, uh, uh, you know, there was sort of, they were looking at Ketlin might not have done what he should have done as a company commander, and I and I quickly divested them of that. And I told them about his arguments with battalion headquarters and, and the staff about the concept of operations that they had developed and, and his his uh, hesitancy to execute that because of his personal experience of seeing enemy activity in the area. And so, you know, I, I don't think they that's not, I don't think that's what they wanted to hear. But they also knew that. Uh, uh, I was the guy that was there, had seen it, and um, that was it. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, they, they, the next day they had a formation and they gave me a silver star. You know, in the Marine Corps, that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask, yeah. like, that's a pretty quick, 
Um, how did that? How did that happen? I never got a certificate. They showed me a message from PAC signed by General Kulak's dad. Um, basically, you know, with a with a write up that you know, I don't know where they got all the information from, but they basically, in the next day, I'm out there in formation, uh, getting the silver star. You know, I'm, you know, surprised. I mean, I was surprised uh, probably more than they were. But I don't even think it was ginned up. I know it wasn't ginned up by the battalion. Uh, and it probably wasn't even ginned up by division, although I can't be I can't be sure on that. Right. The um uh, the other interesting part about that visit is you cross paths with a uh, major on the division staff by the name of uh, Gray. Uh, talk yeah. to us talk to us about that because in in your book you write about that uh, you uh, you were underwhelmed by what you had just participated in in terms of. Uh, trying to uh, maybe assign blame to to uh, to Captain Getlin and somebody who you looked up to tremendously, and uh, but beyond once once that you had dissuaded them of that, there wasn't really a whole lot of interest to, in keeping you around and discussing what what, what had happened. Uh, and then you bump into Major Gray. Tell it tell relate that story to everybody. Yeah, it was kind of funny as as, as you mentioned. I wasn't. Um I wasn't really happy or, I mean, convinced that, um, that the interest level at the, at the division level was really to figure out, um, what lessons learned could be gleaned from what occurred or didn't occur, uh, during that night, uh, engagement and, uh, what we could do better, uh, or correct to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, but I was, I, somehow I bumped into this major who I think was looking for me, uh, Al Gray. Uh, Major Gray, uh, who would, as those in the Marine Corps know, ultimately would be our commandant of the Marine Corps. But he was really interested, and he wanted to find out from A to Z what had occurred. And uh, he picked my brain and asked the right questions and uh, and made the the right statements that made me remember other things that went on in the battle. And so he... It was, it was very interesting because, uh, as you know, when he became commandant, uh, one of his probably his, one of his greatest achievements as commandant was um, introducing professional and professional military education uh, into, the, into the officer corps and into the Marine Corps writ large. And uh, uh, he was seriously, he was a serious student of history and uh, wanted to make sure that, uh, that when, when men and women raised their right hand and took the oath of office either as, a, as an officer or an enlisted, that in fact... Uh, they had the opportunity to have the best leaders available to them, and and he and he and he basically made us become more professional and understand that we were joining a profession, not just joining an outfit that was a Marine Corps or an Army or whatever. So he followed that up uh, throughout his career, and and uh, we're better for it. You know, was interestingly enough, uh, I first heard about General Gray as this guy. Yeah, he he either promotes you or he'll 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 give you an award, and then he then he then he'll haul off and he'll smoke you right in the chest, and uh, and so he and he had this you know he had this bulldog look and kind of mentality and this fiery personality, but then he also has this other side, uh, this this incredibly intellectual side, 
and also, you know, he's really, I mean, the guy who pushed maneuver warfare into the Marine Corps. Um, and, and, and that whole thought that, that I think maybe, I'd be curious about your thoughts, that whole renaissance of thought of, this, of, of our craft, of the way we go about it, the systems that we use. Uh, he's he's this dichotomy of people, this gruff, hard-nosed puncher, and he would. I, I saw him do it. I was like, "Holy shit, man! He smoked that guy." And but it was just great. It was this great. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to call it. This great uh, welcoming ceremony, this celebration of tough of a tough core, and he let you know yeah. about it. And 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 his fire, but also this incredibly like. The tale of two two cities. He has this other personality that's incredibly intellectual and and really changes the Marine Corps. Your your thoughts on uh, General Gray and his gift to the Marine Corps? Oh, for sure. I mean, he brought um, warrior back into war fighting, and uh, as you pointed out, uh, he basically gave birth and and um, and and an impetus to um, maneuver warfare, basically. Uh, he had read Bill Lind's writing. He had read, read John Boyd's writing. Um, and um, he made sure that the schools were teaching maneuver warfare and embracing it. And, um, and he did it by action indeed. And he, well, he, he made me the, the, um, the director of the Amphibious Warfare School, now the Expeditionary Warfare School. And he, he made Paul Van Riper the, uh, the, the commanding officer of Command and Staff College, and he basically, in no, no uncertain terms, made sure that we understood that 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 uh, our curriculums were dedicated to everything maneuver and maneuver warfare, and uh, and then he, he published a, a series of pamphlets, the FMFM series of pamphlets on warfighting, and uh, it was just this whole aura of the warrior and warfighting and what this profession was all about that he basically brought to the table and infused in the Marine Corps. Um, he basically re- rejuvenated the idea of the legacies laid out by the Bellow Woods experience in World War One. And that's where, you know, basically that's where the Marine Corps really established a legacy of warfighting excellence and tenacious ability to close with and, and defeat the enemy. And uh, he basically brought that to the fore. In fact, that thing's still echoing through American history as uh, French President Macron brought a uh, sapling from Bella Woods. I mean, of, of all the different places that he could pull saplings out of, um, the Marine Corps, that, that the power of... Uh, of our own yeah, well, that's the 100th anniversary here in June. Our own from June 1st to June, from June 1st to June 26th, the, the fighting around in Bellow Woods and around there, uh, where the Marines made the name and basically, basically saved the French and, and the British because through our actions in Bellow Woods, that's the first defeat the Germans really suffered. Uh, you know, at that particular time, it was the AEF, the American Expeditionary Force under Pershing. And Pershing was reluctant to turn the American forces over to the French because of trench warfare, and he just felt, felt the leadership just wasn't what he wanted to do. But when the Eastern when the Eastern Front folded and the Germans were able, and the Russians had surrendered, and the Germans were turning 50 divisions, looking at uh, France and Paris in particular, Pershing changed his mind. Of course, that's when uh, guys like uh, What's his name? Dan Dan Daly, a two-time Medal of Honor winner, said, "Come on, you sons of bitches! 
you want to live forever. <laughs> yeah, six bayonets. We're going for it. And that's where the, that's where the legacy of warfighting excellence really took birth. The uh, so let me uh, kind of switch gears and talk about lessons learned. I think it's appropriate, you know, talking about General Gray. We now have a command and control system that talks about commander's intent. Um, and, and understanding what he's trying to achieve, achieve, and if you're a company commander, making sure that what you're doing is lining up with them. Um, I've had Jarvis Lynch on. I've had uh, a, a first lieutenant uh, from Way City um, who, uh, by the name of Nick War, who was in Charlie 1-5 and lost 30 or 50 guys in three frontal attacks uh, inside the old city um, mm-hmm. um, on when 1-5 went in there. Um, and, and I think um, I've read the same, um, uh, I don't know if hand-wringing, but the same frustration that somebody on a radio is telling me to do something that that they don't really know what's going on here. You know, General Lynch got told as an officer, get your, get your battalion back into an LZ because an arc light's going in. The arc light went in nowhere near their position, and they met about 150. You know, you, you had, you know, you, you, you know, you, you know, Captain, um, Captain Getling, he, you know, he pushes back, and at the end of the day, he's doing what he's, he's being a good Marine. He's doing what he's supposed to do. But the guy, the ops on the other end of that, that radio, he doesn't have the same sense that you have. I'm curious, you had, um, you've had 51 years to, to reflect on this. Um, um, your thoughts on commander's intent now and, 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 and a commander's responsibility and maybe a, a leeway now in our command and control system that, that a commander has that, that really wasn't, you know, probably part of what the Marine Corps did, um, in 1967. Yeah, I think um, maneuver warfare basically is successful only if there's a spirit of trust between the command and the commanded. Um, and I think that trust is born from competence and professionalism. And I think um, that's what we're trying to convey to um, down to the lowest level. But it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a balancing game because um, you know damn well that uh, the commander thinks that he's right, even though he, he doesn't have eyes on the ground, and the ability to command and control uh, is has been simplified, you know, with with the advent of different technologies. But we, I just got to hope that, um, you know, the Haitian amount of basic who I'm sure your son can attest to it, they're still talking about commander's intent uh, and 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 the spirit of trust and 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 uh, trust tactics. And the ability to be agile and, and at the same time, you know, be able to make decisions. You know, I always talk about the four things that I think are cre- uh, critical to leadership in the Marine Corps. And I talk about, you know, dedication. I talk about integrity. I talk about judgment. And, and I talk about, um, um, God, I lost my train of thought because I almost tripped here. <laughs> uh, uh, but courage, you know, and, and, and courage is, is kind of the interesting one because I'm not so much talking about physical courage. I'm talking about moral courage and the ability to step back when someone's giving an order that you know is foolish enough and uh, you tincture your response with common sense and say, you know, tell him it's wrong. Tell him he's, he's got the wrong sight picture and that, in fact, uh, uh, you, you're going you're gonna to execute the uh, uh, the mission as, as articulated by the commander's intent that I understand what, at the end of the day, you want me to do. And, 
you have to be, you have to have the moral courage to accept the consequences, which may be, you know, ultimately you may get relieved, or you may. In, in fact, that was sort of uh, one of the stipulations that uh, Mike Gatlin faced. Well, if you want to do it, I'll find someone who will. Well, you know, I think that's when you lose calm. You know what? Those that's hard, those are hard, you know, because you don't want to be. You've always been like. I think a lot of Marine officers, uh, you're no exception. I think we grew up in a similar way. I mean, you grew up playing team sports. You're on the team. I'm not going to shirk my, you know, what am I going to do, shirk my duty? No, I'm going to do yeah. it in, probably in a way that makes more sense to me. And, uh, not, you know, I, I just, you know, I, your your story is so similar to General Lynch's in terms of, you know, a, a smart guys pushing back. Um, mm-hmm. and, 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 and then somebody on the other end of the phone and in – I'm not. I'm not sure. Positive in your case, but you know that that will be relieved after this happens. Doesn't have the common sense to 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 to, um, to 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 turn back and say, "Hey, if that's what you think is best, you know, hey Pete, if, I'm sorry, hey Mike, if that's what you think is best, do what you see best." If they don't have that trust the other way, because that's exactly what should happen. You know, you know, what do you and your direct the rest of your op staff know about what's going on on this piece of ground right now? What the, what the deuce told you? Well, hell, I'm out yeah. here. I can tell the yeah. deuce what's going on, and he can learn from me. And so, you know, it's just uh, you know, reading that is 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 you know, hearing about that is is, is certainly frustrating. The um, yeah, for sure. All right, sir. Any other? This is the general question before I let you go. Are there any other things about you know about this fight on the 30th and and uh, and, uh, and and the 31st that, that is is referred to. You refer to it as Getlin's Corner. Yes. Yeah. They um, they did an article on it in uh, Leatherneck, um, and it was it, and and when it was written, it was written from the perspective of uh, a couple Marines that were in the command group, and so there was actually two battles, as far as I could see. It was the battle of the command group trying to survive at the battle of first platoon turning around and trying to help get to the the command group to to relieve them. And so you had two battles seen through two sets of eyes or you know different sets of eyes. Right. And and that happens all the time. And uh, uh thank God we had some great Marines on that hill or whatever hill seventy is really just a, just something on the map. Uh, but thank God we had some great Marines there, and then we had some great Marines who was uh, uh, the platoon, John Prickett's platoon, that I ultimately took command of, that uh, closed with the enemy, you know, fearlessly. And uh, it, was, it was inspiring to kind of watch them and have the opportunity to lead them in action, and, and, and they responded to commands uh, quickly. And, and I think that just... You know, they epitomized the, uh, I'll say, the Bella Wood spirit. You know, they were ready to fix bayonets if we had to. My guest for the for probably too long <laughs> has been uh, General uh, Butch Neal, United States Marine Corps retired, uh, an artilleryman by trade. Uh, we're talking about action on the 30th and the 31st of March uh, in 1967 uh, in between uh, in the vicinity of Contien. And uh, and the Camlo combat bases north of uh, Camp Carroll. Sir, first of all, uh, there's no way I could say thank you enough for giving uh, me the, the, uh, the couple hours today. 
but thank you very much. I can tell you that thousands of people uh, will listen to this. And uh, my hope is by getting the chance to, to hear you talk in detail about these kind of events, that, that uh, the things that you talk about, the things that you put emphasis on, uh, go into their brains. And if they're ever crossed uh, with similar situations, that, that, uh, that they take heed of your, your, uh, your lessons and are wiser and better leaders than their age would uh, indicate because of these kind of things. So thank you very much. Okay, Mac. Um, yeah, we'll look forward to talking to you again. That is General Butch Neal, United States Marine Corps retired. He's an artilleryman by trade. He's a veteran of the Vietnam War. If you paid attention during Desert Storm, you saw he was the spokesperson for General Schwarzkopf and Central Command. So uh, my thanks to him for coming on and doing that. You'll hear him again in probably about a week when he comes back to talk about his book, What Now, Lieutenant? As I told you, just um, an amazing life. An amazing life. And so kind of in keeping with uh, the way that we say goodbye to people when we tribute them, um, we all play honors. And just uh, what a great example to all of us of what it was to be a leader to be a Marine and to just to live a great life in the service of his family in the service of his nation so um, we'll do that right now as uh, again uh, we say goodbye to former assistant commandant artillery officer, uh, marine officer, a native of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, a quote-unquote hall guy, as they called themselves, and just, uh, just an, an incredible uh, just an incredible story um, that um, is just good. And so the way these honors go, uh, the song Eternal Father, uh, that we play it and sing it at all Marine memorial services, the ceremonial playing of the Marine Corps hymn, and then taps with a 21-gun salute in honor of General Richard Butch Neal, United States Marine Corps.
On that note, we wish General Neal fair winds of following seas. May God hold he and his family in his hand and hold his hand close to his heart. I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Have a great day. Thank you for listening.